Welcome to a special Star Trek.com audio commentary for Star Trek The Motion Picture, The Director's Edition. Today we are joined by three people whose extraordinary work on The Director's Edition effectively realized director Robert Wise's original vision of the film. Producer David C. Fine, Restoration Supervisor Michael Mattesino, and Visual Effects Supervisor Darren R. Docterman. Start playing the DVD now. Hello and welcome to our commentary. My name is Mike Mattesino. I was the restoration supervisor for the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture. The director in question being Mr. Robert Wise, our dear friend, colleague, and mentor who left us in September of 2005, shortly after his 91st birthday. May he rest in peace. Indeed. I am joined today by the uh, two other gentlemen without whom this project would not have been possible, and I will let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Dave Fine. I'm the producer of uh, this little film, Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's edition. Um, I'm here with uh, my, my good friends, and uh, I'm sure Mr. Wise and uh, Bob and Spirit. And this is Darren Docterman, and I was the visual effects supervisor for this uh, film. And uh, I don't need to say the title of it again, because I think everyone knows what it is, because they're watching it. You think by now? <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to say that we are, from Television City in Hollywood, we are uh, live on tape. Yeah, so without further ado, we... On tape? tape? What's tape? <laughs> yeah, what is tape? We'd like to thank our uh, friends here at CBS, who Indeed. are on the other side of the glass, recording this as we watch this terrific film. And um, we're listening to the marvelous musical overture by Jerry Goldsmith, who also left us uh, in 2004. Um, but he worked with us um, on this uh, project. And um, it brings several things to mind. Um, the first of which is that I think his only other musical overture, which was uh, quite common in the 50s and 60s during the so-called roadshow era, his only other one was on Bob Wise's film, The Sand Pebbles, released in 1966. And I think, and my friends can correct me if I'm wrong, I think this film and Disney's The Black Hole, which opened one week later, were probably the last two films to theatrically open with this musical prelude. I think was, that's right. It was Black Hole at the time. And it was a way of really, you know, stating that this was a big, important film and there was a lot of publicity about Star Trek when it opened in December of 1979. Um, the other thing that I'm reminded of is um, the sort of Robert Wise tradition of having something on screen while the overture plays as opposed to traditional black leader. Because I think at the time West Side Story was done in 1961, there was a lot of um, word going around that theaters were cropping the overture off because they thought it was leader. <laughs> And a lot of the uh, prints that uh, that we viewed had the uh, overture chopped off as well. We noticed. That's right. It was great that that uh, Bob took the time to you know suggested that we do a Starfield, mm -hmm. and it always felt like we were talking about it being uh, either Vija's journey or the Enterprise's journey back. And we were going backwards, so we're sort of like that cliche of to see where you've been. This was the relaunch of Star Trek as a franchise for Paramount in 1979 after uh, many years of development and the cancellation of the original television series 10 years earlier. And now we come to the credits, and uh, boy, this just brings back a lot of things, too. 
um, because uh, one of you guys walked in one day with a fantastic uh, Auger d'Art that I'll never forget. <laughs> which one of you was it? What, which one are you talking about? Uh, some uh, black cards with white oh, letters God. on them. Oh, yes. Uh, we, uh, the original titles the original when they title were found. Original title cards. And, the the uh, Woody Allen version. Right. The black and white that they uh, shot as... As, as uh, temps. Yeah, so, as temps and just had to cut it into the movie. So there was some verisimilitude here because we used those actual things. We didn't just type this on a computer. We actually scanned those original title cards, mm-hmm. correct? That's correct. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm remembering going to see this as a kid, and we knew, it was highly publicized that this film was extraordinarily expensive, over $40 million. We didn't know then that a good chunk of that had been spent on development. But mm-hmm. um, when you went to see this film and you saw those simple credits, you wondered, this does not feel like a big budget film, mainly because I remember that just a year before this opened, we had... Superman, which was another hugely budgeted film. They don't even know how much it cost. And that had those spectacular animated credits, and you knew that the money was on the screen. Well, I, I just remember when I first saw it that uh, I, I, it, it didn't even occur to me that those were temp credits. I thought that was exactly what they meant to do, and mm-hmm. uh, that it was uh, the way they, they wanted it. And it was, it was... after realizing it, I, uh, the first thing that I did on this project was actually re-render the main title logo and uh, make it the one that appears now. And I think we found storyboards of different versions of for the titles when they were in the planning stages for this movie. And a lot of them, some of them were more elaborate than what we ultimately went with. And I think we, um, Bob agreed that uh, we should try to not stray too far from what the movie was, but to fix what needed to be fixing. And we'll talk more about how that whole process evolved. But with specific regard to the credits, I do remember one other very funny story um, where we debated the color of them. Well, there was because... a lot of talk about how the, the film was considered very cold in general, and there was some talk about uh, going from the white logo, the white uh, credits, to uh, a blue almost reminiscent of uh, season three of the classic show. Mm-hmm. And because and, most uh, of this movie is lit blue, not this particular scene with the Klingon cruiser, but later on, everything associated with V'ger seems to be blue. The uniforms are very pale blue. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed consistent. So it's funny that we actually brought, you know, Bob came in that day and we were saying, okay, well, here's the credits in, in blue. And we were showing him the whole thing. And we, we, he was saying, well, what other options do we have? And uh, it's nice that inverting blue gives a, a goldish color. So it's pretty simple for us to just invert the coloring scheme. And uh, he really liked the gold look to it. And that kind of gave us a, a whole feeling of, um, in general, we wanted to stick to this gold motif for this version of the film. And uh, I think his exact words was uh, that the, yeah, let's go with the gold. It has balls. <laughs> At which point we all hit the floor. Yeah, because, like, I mean, Bob? <laughs> Bob was an incredible gentleman and um, worked in this industry for 60 years and never ceased to be a gentleman, which is why he was a mentor and an inspiration to so many people. And to um, suddenly hear him just come out and say that, <laughs> which was absolutely true. You know, and in retrospect, as I look at it, he was absolutely right. And he knew his stuff. And it, it touches me that that one little decision that he made, and he said it so strongly, gave us the, you know, the gold packaging, the gold logo is just gorgeous, and it just stuck to the project. And it was a very big uh, conscious decision when we started with the project was to warm the whole thing up with all the mechanical voices and, um, you know, the, the whole coldness of the film. 
left uh, you know people with that feeling as well. And just the 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 premise of going with the gold and having it be warm from the beginning helped dramatically. And even the color timing, which we uh, participated in uh, near the beginning of the project. Uh, was focused on making everything less gray than mm -hmm. it uh, had appeared in previous uh, transfers. And that was mainly the transfers, because mm -hmm. the film didn't look like that. No, the, the film we, was actually of, quite warm. And one of the first things we did was get a print from Paramount, took it to the Directors Guild, and screened it, and we were all shocked really about how great it looked and how we'd been looking cable TV and VHS versions for many, many years. And it just belied what the film truly looked like. And unfortunately, even that print was missing the overture. Yes. That some, some projectionist, yes. uh, you, you know, had thought, what's all this extra leader at the beginning of the film? And we had another wonderful guy, Richard Klein, the director of photography on this, who'd also worked with Bob on the Andromeda strain, um, participating in this and working with us and making it look the way that it should. And uh, just so many things uh, come back as we watch this. Yeah, I remember a considerable amount of... Uh... You know, the there was some flaws in some of the shots, like the little uh, the the Floating guy in the spacesuit and the little blue, blue dot, dot that yeah. was that was uh, in the Klingon shot that we that we, we, had to we paint should, out shot frame by frame. We should maybe say as quickly as possible, um, but you know, just to summarize for anybody who might not know, is that really what was released in 1979, as far as Bob Wise was concerned, was a first rough cut of the picture. Um, they were locked into a release date. It was an extraordinary number of challenges meeting that date. And uh, somebody said that uh, even if it had to have black leader in it, it had to go out on that date. That was uh, Michael Eisner. And it was even in his book. Um, his head of Paramount was, at the time. That if the, the, the film was, uh, had black leader, it was going to go out as it was. It was also funny that Richard Klein had mentioned to us um, that uh, everyone seemed really uncomfortable about um, the original release of the film because uh, how rushed it was that um, there was a, a funny story they once told us that um, they took out the largest stage at MGM when they were printing the film and they had the film cans lined up in a row and he just he remembered walking in there and he got this sinking feeling like it was like the little tombstones. Right. <laughs> well, real one would come in, they'd drop it in the cans. Right. Real two would come in. When they had a full set of cans, it went on, on to a plane and off to the theater. So here comes the real star of this uh, director's edition, the planet Vulcan. One of, one, of the, yeah, one of the major stories. Uh, there is so much to talk about because uh, what no Dave room. was mentioning about the coldness of the film and trying to warm it up. Um, part of the rush of this production was that what really could have been a, a fantastic sci-fi classic is actually in this film. You just have to look a little bit harder to find it. And... Um, Gorgeous work by Foundation. I, I just want to say that the, uh, Dave Morton, who did the yeah. uh, matte paintings for these, did an absolutely spectacular job, and uh, I think it, it really gives us the feeling of Vulcan, and it relates to every other Vulcan that we've seen. Did the um, did anybody ever mention that the that about the digital Spock there? Sure, I think that was covered. That was in the docs. It was covered. I think that was in the documentary. Yeah, it was a documentary on the special effects for the director's edition. But what other people uh, don't know is that these shots as well have a little uh, uh, changes to them. On the left side of the boot. On the left side of the boot, there was some kind of underground, uh, it looked like a, a refinery or something. <laughs> Actually, think of what it was, was the docking port for the Vulcan shuttle we see later. Ah, it's really and, small you know, planet. We, now this, I mean, it, it was which Urasich did the matte paintings for this? It was Matt. Matthew. Matthew, okay. Matthew, yeah. And he actually started working on one that looked like what we all ended up with on mm -hmm. that establishing shot, which combined painting with 
uh, a plate, a forced perspective plate done at Yellowstone. Right. And they ended up scrapping that and going for this crazy thing with moons in the sky well, and, this, and this shuttle port there. And, you know, it somehow didn't feel that it would work to know that if you went for this monastic purging that Spock is going through, that you could just say, well, this <laughs> isn't working out for right me. You, know, you wanted to imagine that he had to walk across the desert for days and go without well, food, and it really needed to be desolate. And let, let me just mention something quickly here about this, uh, the layout of this Vulcan temple. Um, as you notice on the, on the floor, the tiles are basically set on a, in a six-sided pattern. And on the, uh, on the necklace that uh, she gives Spock, there's also a six-sided figure on there. And V'ger itself is a six-sided mm -hmm. object. So uh, we began to realize that this six-sided object could uh, theoretically represent total logic itself. And uh, so we set out uh, in, you know, the backstory and figuring out what this Vulcan temple would look like. Uh, we made a giant six-sided uh, plateau with a, one of these statues at each of the mm -hmm. pinnacles of it. And uh, so it actually does make sense in the overall scope of the design of the movie. Yet all based on the storyboards that they actually mm -hmm. originally done. Um, that they really didn't get to accomplish the way they had been initially designed. And I was really happy that too that I, that we saw later on Enterprise they used this to the the same temple design. Mm -hmm. yeah, we we definitely kept consistent with everything else. San Francisco. Now, who shot the plate for this, Darren? Uh, this was uh, one of our friends who actually was a uh, co-creator uh, of Lightwave, and uh, his name is Alan Hastings, and he shot the uh, the plates for these up in San Francisco. One of the things that uh, was great about the um, the Spock uh, uh, in his outfit, we actually found early proof photos of caveman Spock in a like a loincloth and a big uh, uh, skin over him on the bridge of the Enterprise. That these were mm -hmm. test photos that we found. That was just uh, uh, amazing. But but they've they've never been seen. But it was just we were looking at this, thinking about what the possibilities were to have this caveman come out. There was no doubt about it that the effects work on the film originally was truly spectacular. But if you analyzed it very closely, you saw how in a lot of instances they just got by. And I think when we saw the original effects storyboard book, we just were all astounded at um, really what was designed, what was planned, and what they weren't able to do. It showed a much more completed vision than we got. I always thought it was just funny that they built this escalator there. That's, mm -hmm. that's not an escalator, but if you look at it, it was just a moving staircase. Darren, you want to say something about how much of the, how much work was put into that one, the, the, the shot of the station, the headquarters? There was a lot of work, just basically extending it out to, you know, give Mr. Wise more of the uh, vast expanses that he wanted and uh, that was impossible from the plates that they had shot with uh, the tram being in front of this basically big brown wall. And uh, so we figured out a way to extend it out without having to affect the uh, live action plates. We should say that the principal effects artists on the film were the great Doug Trumbull, who had just come off of Close Encounters of the Third mm -hmm. Kind when he did this and, and was Dykstra. very famous for 2001. Right. John Dykstra, who had originally been his assistant when they worked on the graphics for Bob's Andromeda Strain. And then John went off and became the visual effects supervisor, won an Oscar for the original Star Wars. And then when they got into a bind with finishing the effects for this, they worked together and basically split them. So um, this um, orbital office for the San Francisco yard um, was really the introduction of the Doug's entertainment effects group work on the film. 
Um, prior to this, we've seen Dykstra's work primarily on the Klingon battle that opened the film, and the paintings as um, earlier mentioned by uh, Matt Yurisich. It was at this time that we were that we were beginning to do the project that we realized we were going to go back and speak to Doug and John. That at the same time we realized if we can get them together and do not to get them together, but but all the people we knew we were going to be uh, speaking to about the history that we should also record the interviews for them. So we ended up doing all of the interviews for uh, the special features and such because we were already hunting down the people and we felt that it was a good way to get our answers but also have that, those interviews shared. They all did look at our work and everything and um, and they they really saw that we were making it all look as if it had been done at the time or could have been done at the time and that it would blend seamlessly and actually make their work look better and just to give it that extra notch that we all imagined in our um, love of Star Trek at the time that was really there. But uh, when, again, when we looked at it closely, we saw that there's just small improvements that could be made, small enhancements, without really changing the overall film as an experience. We wanted it to be the film that you uh, really thought you saw when you first went to see it. And the other thing is I think that um, we hoped that if somebody had never seen it or never seen any Star Trek, that if they watched this movie, we would pull them in. And um, Bob always wanted to, you know, a attract just the average moviegoer to an entertaining experience. And maybe then you'd go check out other Star Trek and watch the many other films and the shows that exist. This scene, I think when we first started talking about this project and a few trusted friends that we mentioned, this always came up, this scene, because this is became kind of infamous. Um, well, if you're as, a Star Trek fan, you love the view of the Enterprise. If you're, uh, it seems to have been, if you're a member of the of the public who wasn't a huge Star Trek fan, you'd wonder why we're spending all this time going around the ship. And they expected that this would be the first thing that we cut out, but or cut down considerably. But the, but you, we really, we, I don't think we ever for a moment considered cutting it down. There are several forces at work in this okay. amazing scene. Um, one of them is Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, because here in this five or six minute sequence, it's everything um, that he believed in, this possibility that if we just sort of get over ourselves, we could actually have this. We could actually be going up and there is a, spa a spaceship ready to go to um, other star systems, travel, meet um, other life forms, you know, and that we could actually get to that point with just a little bit of work. And then the other force you have is um, Doug Trumbull with um, his concept of first-person cinema where you set up the narrative and then you back the characters out of it so that you as an audience member are the character in the movie. You are in this travel pod experiencing this, looking at this incredible vessel um, ready for launch. And the other thing is, is that Trumbull pulls it off in a very realistic way. You notice you could linger on these shots much, much longer than almost any shot um, is held in a, in a film made nowadays, effects or otherwise. Um, you know, you really buy the image. And of course, then the other, in my opinion, the other force at work here is Jerry Goldsmith, who wrote this five-minute, 58-second cue called The Enterprise that you just cannot take one note out of. It's absolutely perfect. The dialogue goes away, and it becomes what movie making is all about. Um, 
that combination of image sound that creates emotion and you don't need anything else in the way, you can't touch it. One change we did make in this sequence is coming up and it's a subtle thing, but it uh, really connects to the humanity of the story uh, by, uh, funny enough, uh, showing the Enterprise in a shot that we hadn't seen it before. And that is uh, the shot of Captain Kirk looking out the front view screen and we see the, re shot. the reflection of his love on the outside of the pod. There it is. Mm -hmm. It really went Getting from a simple close-up to an image that, to me, encapsulates all of Star Trek in that one image. And that, um, wasn't direct, that was directly inspired by Doug Trumbull, who wanted to really do that throughout the sequence. Um, but again, just uh, they had a, a phrase that was going around their effects facility at the time they were making this, which was crop it, flop it, or drop it. They had to take the path of least resistance in a lot of this work to um, just get a sequence together that made sense. And I think Jerry really saved a lot of that with this, what, what to me is uh, the greatest score that he's ever made, that he's ever composed, and one of the greatest scores in the history of film music. I always felt that this sequence was also a, a gift to all of the, the people who dreamt of going off into space and had their enterprise models, and you'd hold up your model and you'd look at it, and this, it's, it's like giving you a great representation of being able to go around and look at the new model as this beautiful introduction of the ship where it is today. And the Enterprise herself has never looked better than mm -hmm. in this sequence. Well, certainly for Star Trek fans, it just was an amazing thing to go from that, uh, you know, the outdated effects from the late 60s, which is still loved anyway, but to be able to go and see it and hold on it for this length of time and have it really be believable, it just was astounding. And I think that anybody who suggested that uh, this be cut had never seen this on a big screen, where it was meant and where it was designed to be shown. Because when you did look at it in the theater, um, you, you just, it was blown away. You never thought, you never were bored, you never thought of losing a second, you wanted to study every corner of the frame. Rick Sternbeck, who I got to work with on the pilot of Voyager, um, tells this story of being called, he worked on Star Trek The Motion Picture as a, uh, as one of the illustrators, and he was called in one day to teach Scotty how to fly the space pod, because they hadn't really given the actors any uh, instruction of what to do or how to look like they're flying this thing. And so Rick uh, went into the, uh, into the stage one morning and uh, uh, sat there and, and told Scotty how to fly. Yet we don't see the controls a single time. Well, it, well, nowadays in the future, it's hit a button and it does it. So it's <laughs> <laughs> that, there's, something, um, there's something really to be said about the design of this, this whole film, that it set a, a much higher standard than the original show had that I think really carried on to the subsequent movies and the subsequent shows, that the, the, the beautiful aspects of this film, the beautiful designs even the ship with the glowing engines, etc., um, helped raise the bar for um, the show and everything else that was going on subsequently, all the next, next generation and Deep Space Nine. And... It did raise the bar, I think, just in general for science fiction filmmaking, and that was um, going on in other films at the time. This was the year of Alien, the year after Superman, as I mentioned before, and, of course, Star Wars, Close Encounters, fantastic uh, visionary timeless classics now. We were talking about the, the audio work here. I remember that we were bringing up the elevator uh, sound effect 
almost as if the elevator was beckoning him, don't step out into the bridge, was something I remembered having a conversation with uh, Chuck Michael, our, our sound supervisor for the film. And uh, there was so much work that we were really serious about uh, making sure the sound played a, a, a tremendous role in this picture. And uh, I told Chuck at the beginning of the project, you're going to get us the PG rating, which we, which we actually were able to get for the film. And you watch this film, there's, there's nothing that really would, it would say this is going to be a PG rated picture, especially when it was rated before. So the work that Chuck, that, that Chuck and his group did was just phenomenal in helping that happen. And we'll talk about more of the specifics when those scenes come up. What you just saw was the first dialogue scene, um, that little exchange after Kirk left the bridge, little moment that was not in the film when it was originally released in 1979. It was shown on the television versions, but that illustrates this whole idea of focusing on the humanity of the picture. And I mentioned earlier about how this really is a flawed science fiction classic. Um, I think that there was this idea that you were going to redesign the Enterprise. It was going to be state-of-the-art. And so consequently, there would just be this technology overload. The computers spoke and the, and the machines seemed to run everything. The problem was we ultimately get to what they're going after and they find that V'ger is a machine. So the machines became everything about the story. But instead, I think what needed to happen and what we attempted to do, since we couldn't really change the movie, was to show that on the Enterprise, it was nothing without the people. It had to be what the tagline on the poster said. It had to be a human adventure. And um, the problem, the essential problem in this movie, that maybe if they'd had more time to work on the script, they could have gotten that far, is that this inability of people to work together and to connect to each other is the essential problem. And it mirrors Vidra's problem, his or its feeling of incompleteness and needing to connect with something, which it does physically. And um, I noticed, and God, Bob hated when I pointed out this kind of um, symbolism and stuff in his films. He always said he never intended. You're talking about a guy who didn't see the Christ metaphors in the Day of the Earth still, okay? Mm -hmm. But um, the shot where the travel pod docks with the Enterprise, that that image of things connecting to each other is a motif that goes throughout the film. In the Vulcan scene, you saw Spock refuse the connection. He pushes that necklace away. He doesn't want that connection because he's sensing the calling of something else. And um, later on, when Spock's shuttle docks, and then it ultimately leads to uh, um, the uh, trip into V'ger, which, um, if you think about it also, this movie is about going out into space and exploring. That's what Star Trek is about. But what do we end up with? We end up with a plot that goes inside. We're constantly moving into things. We go into a cloud, we go into a vessel, we go into a, a chamber in that vessel, and we end up with a little island and a little wire that's not connected. And, you know, the story that's really going on here is about the need for people to connect to each other. And um, we try to just um, go further with that. And the way to do that was to focus on the people, get rid of the machines on the Enterprise as much as possible, make it about people. What I need to, to comment about here for the scene was that um, this was one of the, the, the pivotal moments that I said to Chuck 
this is going to, you know, this is part of our PG rating here. We need nails on the chalkboard, you know, chills down your spine. Imagine, and, and I remember saying to him, I, imagine, you know, you're this horrible ball of flesh looking for some some way, form of yourself to scream out of. Just just try to think of the most nightmarish thing you could think of to to you know, evoke and get that horrible sound. And I believe we really succeeded in, in accomplishing that frightening moment to make it even more frightening. Cause as a kid, it terrified me, the scene. Do you think that moment gave us the PG? I think that's one of the key moments that gave the PG, the power of the, of the, the, the sound throughout the film did it, but that was one of the pivotal moments that, that did earn us the PG. There was another thing that, that Bob had mentioned here. And, um, we had the benefit of, a 20, 20 years of preview screenings of the film being released. and um, Which was been, like the preview, because he didn't actually have one. Right, the preview was Bob, Bob would have previewed the long. film. And there's been a, you know, the, one of the questions here was, Kirk had a line where, where he would go, oh my God. And that line almost always would gather a laugh from anybody who's watching. And here's this very serious sequence that, you know, these these characters and these, these people have just died and it was a bad laugh as Bob, you know, as, as you'd call it. And that's one of the reasons that the line had to be pulled. But it's funny because with so many people being familiar with the film, there's people who have actually come up to us and said, how could you pull the line? Oh my God, I loved it. And it's just not right for that moment. It's, it's changing the tone away from the film. And that's why we needed to cut that line. The other thing is, is that we found out that they shot a lot of incidental dialogue almost as protection because they knew about the bind of this visual effects and worried that they might not have a coherent story. So if somebody actually came and said what was happening, it might fill in for an effect that didn't get made. So um, since um, the transporter effects were there and um, worked, it was very obvious that you needed that exchange between Shatner and Jimmy Doohan worked fine. And again, now it suddenly wasn't about a transporter malfunction. It was about two people just died. If you look here at the people that are just standing here watching the view screen, the shortest woman in the front in a tan jumpsuit is actually Millicent Wise, Bob's wife. Well, we could roll this scene back 40 times and constantly talk and about all, all the people, people that they yeah. put in here. It was like this huge casting call of extras, plus um, anybody who was anybody in Star Trek at the time. Um, there's another cut that was made in this scene that uh, I've um, gotten complaints about since we finished this. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I st absolutely stand by it. And that's after this um, uh, image that they're going to look of, of Epsilon 9 being destroyed or absorbed by V'ger. Admiral Kirk asks his chief communications officer to turn the viewer off. And in the original cut of the film, she freezes staring either at her commanding officer or at a Federation emblem on the screen. I'm not sure which. But she freezes and has to be told twice to turn the viewer off while 430 crew members are standing there about to go after this thing to find out what it is, where they've just seen other uh, Starfleet officers killed by it. And um, it just was very clear that, you know, you didn't want to have a command officer 
you know, this crew would think, well, if we're in a crisis, is our communications officer going to just freeze and do nothing? Right. I so, mean, this is, these people have supposedly been out seeing wonders and uh, strange things for at least five years. Yeah. And they, they probably have seen things maybe even worse than this. And, uh, you know, they, they are a good group of people that know what to do, even under pressure. And if you're working Look, on a, that bridge, a space, you're not going to freeze. Yeah. Look, a space station was destroyed by a cloud. You know, it's, 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 you know. Which she's probably I love, I love this scene with this poor guy trying to outrun the, <laughs> yeah. the zapper la laser rays. It's a great, great image. I can make it. I think I can make it. I'm pretty sure again, I can make yeah. it. Again, the human element, it becomes not about the effects. Oof. It becomes about somebody dying. And then he trips and dies. Boom. Love the jury score. See, now What's, there's uh, Admiral Kirk standing. We're really with the, the point of this doing this scene was that you heard on the old TV show about 430 crew people, but you never saw more than maybe 20. What I, what I love is, is here that. they are. But now here he is, poor Kirk, standing there, have to stare his entire crew in the face. Uh, and what? what do I tell them? And he has to say, well, we're just going to get on with it, people. There's a some guy standing in the front row, Rob Klein, who is a prop uh, uh, expert and one of the people that worked with us on the project. There's a guy in the foreground. You may have to ring this back. It's wearing a white um, a piece of plastic on his or a white console on the on his on his chest. And I believe it was Rob um, who did some great work with us on the um, the collecting materials for this project, um, who pointed out that that's actually the bottom section of a Cylon Raider model. From uh, uh, <laughs> well, I think Battlestar that, uh, Galactica. I don't know if the Galactica Dykstra's Galactica shop had really wrapped <laughs> up at, yet at this point, so they grabbed anything they could. Mm -hmm. It might have even been Logan's Run costume at Starfleet. Oh, the lovely Persis Kambata. Straight from George Lucas's THX 1138, <laughs> including the uh, Oath of Celibacy. She obviously didn't oh, take her oath very Persis. seriously. Miss a former Miss India who then died tragically at the age of fifty from a heart attack. So, but uh, from I all feel, accounts, she was like a, a lovely person. Know. She was a carryover actually from the Star Trek Phase Two, which um, is how this movie originally began its life as uh, Paramount's attempt to relaunch Star Trek as a television series with the entire original cast and on their own network. On their own network, which then didn't happen for another twenty years. But um, when that was aborted and they went for making a feature film, um, fortuitously in the wake of Star Wars, um, she, her character and that actress um, as the bald Delton Ilea was carried over. And all the costs of developing that series were actually transferred to the budget of this film. And that's one mm -hmm. of the reasons why it was very expensive. Uh, but what, do. what was great was that we did come across footage and uh, lots of test footage and lots of photos from the, from the, uh, the filming. And uh, there were two interesting things that we discovered from that footage. Number one, well, two interesting, one thing that, that was great to observe was the... So, before you say that, I just want to say that McCoy is in fact not wearing the headpiece to the staff of Ra around his neck. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's like saying Uhura does not take uh, uh, fast food orders for, for Burger King. That's right. Because that's not a Burger King logo behind her. But but I do think he was beamed up directly from the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> he might have been. But if you remember, the one, one of the things we didn't change was that we didn't add his beard being beamed up. Because <laughs> the outline of him doesn't have his beard. You know, a little, little thing that uh, somebody was nitpicking, they'd, they'd make a comment about. 
the little moment um, that was added in, again, it was also in the TV extended version, um, that of uh, the yeoman that comes up and gives that little, you know, introductory thing that you know McCoy is coming. Each of the three main characters have a very theatrical entrance in this film, which is a nice, nice touch. I need you badly. Again, so see, you, you to, joke about that line, Darren, but it's like, you know, that, it's that's great. Just, it's the whole theme. I, I joke because there's I love. Yeah, there's people who need each other. If they're going to go out and do this, if they're going to try to manage this technological, you know, marvel and go out to other planets, other civilizations, you know, they have to connect with each other. And everybody's very disconnected in this film. And, uh, God, I just, um, I'm realizing that was a theme sort of in some of those movies that I mentioned at the time. Um, Star Wars, you have what Darth Vader calls a technological terror, you know, and he himself is a technological terror. And um, what defeats it? You know, human beings coming together, people who say, may the force be with you and have um, metal ceremonies. Um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which ended up not being about UFOs, but it it was about um, being chosen, you know, and uh, connecting with another life form. E.T., of course, was the pinnacle of that. That was sort of a theme throughout the science fiction films of this era. And Star Trek is about that just as much as those others. Mike, do you remember the first time we went to Paramount? It was uh, many, many years ago. And um, I remember walking past a dumpster and we saw one of the Enterprise bridge panels. Mm -hmm. And we just realized by that point that uh, that that bridge was never going to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Said that they had scrapped. This was, that was right after the undiscovered country, I believe. Well, no, it was after uh, Trek Four, because the bridge was still set up for that, and I think what was left over of the bridge might have ended over it, ended up at uh, Universal for the Maybe. Star Trek uh, adventure at the time. Notice the great subtle acting, and I'm being totally serious. The subtle acting by Shatner in this scene, how he's how he's acting really nervous about taking the old girl out again. Well, and you can see his little his his, fingers, his fingers yeah. are, you know, just nervously tapping his chair. Isn't this an element of um, the 48-year-old guy? Of course, we're all far from being 48. Um, the 48-year-old old guy who gets a Porsche. Isn't there an element of that in this? You know? this, is, this is Kirk's midlife crisis yeah. that he finally uh, reconciles in Star Trek II. It's funny that uh, I remember Trumbull, this, this model, this gorgeous, amazing model that we, uh, that we were able to use... Uh, bring back for the project to to create the CG model for the Enterprise is about eight feet tall, eight feet long. But I remember Trumbull saying that it was just absolutely uh, a brilliant size, but he would have gone even bigger. Even bigger. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? That past shot of, of the Enterprise coming toward us and coming out of the uh, dry dock was actually a shot that we changed for this uh, for this project. Because if you'll notice in the original version, or in Star- or in Trek Two, or in Trek Two where it's still, uh, you'll notice that the outline of a support rod coming out of the side of the Enterprise is blocking out the dry dock behind it. On the I didn't notice it. On, you have to roll back. Side. I didn't notice it. Oh, you got no, rid of it. That's we got right. rid of it. That's yeah. right. <laughs> now, actually, but, but, coming but for the next film, it was a different time that the, that the that the Enterprise was launching. That time they needed a support arm. Right. right. Coming up here is one of my absolute favorite changes. Yes. And I think it illustrates. Everything that I said before about focusing on the humanity. Um, you're coming to um, the Enterprise um, about to fly into the outer reaches of the solar system. And um, there's an exchanged glance between Ilea and Decker, played by the great Stephen Collins, 
we also got to uh, go over to Seventh Heaven set where he just finished 11 seasons on that show. Unbelievable. Um, and we replaced, we took that from later on and re- right here and replaced what was there, like an Astro Gator? It was the yeah. Astro Gator with lights blinking on and off. Again, that was a shot of technology. What are we looking at? Why is it important? You know, this is about people going out into space who have relationships with each other, who long for connection with each other. And, um, and now we're it's starting those little episode. changes without really affecting the overall film. It's just little things that they would have done had they previewed this film and saw there's too much of an emphasis on effects and technology, you know, and um, we need to make some of small changes to kind of even that balance out. Well, and it was, it's a change like that that re- just helps it, in, in my estimation, just infinitesimally. But wasn't the, the shot of the astrogator also, they, they did a lots of shots of technology and lights going off and things happening just to cover up the possible lack the of possible visual possible lack of something on the view screen. Right. So they, they had a panel to cut so to. many different things to, to cover. I want to go back before I lose track of this to phase two. The thing that we found that was unusual about the phase two footage was this was for a television show, yet they shot it widescreen. And we were wondering where that decision to that was very look at this as a movie when everyone was still wearing the old uniforms and they were suddenly doing these widescreen shots that wouldn't be for television. So well, was... also, before the television show, it was going to be a movie. Mm-hmm. There was a development uh, for uh, a, a film as early as... Uh, late, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the the prospect of new Star Trek had existed for several years and they just didn't exactly know what to do with it. Well, I think they made the right choice. See, Kirk is here. You know, if I can just get to warp speed, if I could just get this ship under my control, everything will be the way that it should be. Right. But he has this journey in this film of coming to the conclusion that it's not about that at all. It's about connecting with people. And he's really not completed till Spock comes back. And he changes after that. He's it's sort almost of like this a bit of an insecurity that he doesn't have until his, his, his team is complete. Mm-hmm. And again, this wormhole sequence... That's now starting with incredible effects that uh, supervised by Doug Trommel. Um, again, it's like it was probably there because somebody wanted to show what some of the mishaps of warp travel could be. But it plays into this whole theme because you see illustrated here the essential problem is these people are literally out of sync with each other. And this uh, this wormhole actually was done by uh, Dykstra's people oh, because I'm sorry. it was a it was a scanning laser that they put on the motion control rig and stretched it out through time exposure. But it's still but these effects amazing. on the bridge too. No, these uh, effects on the bridge were done by the uh, effects animation crew and uh, the Robert Swarth. Yes. Okay. And um, if I remember correctly, they also had to shoot thirty five millimeter and sixty five millimeter right. on a lot of these angles. It was just it was weeks and weeks and weeks. That in the 60s, they probably would have made 10 episodes of Star Trek. Sure. That's this correct. This was the first sequence that was really completed, too. That's correct. For the effects. It was in a very early promo reel. Yeah, short of some, some minor editing um, during the sequence, um, this is just really was brilliant. Another, I mean, there was no changes that we needed. Another area there where the sound that. work was fantastic. Right. Um, people may not know that when you make a film, you cannot do your sound edit until the picture is locked. Well, when your picture is not locked until two weeks before you have to be in theaters, you have no time to do any sound work. So um, Jerry's score um, covered a lot of that. 
shortfall originally. And in fact, his last recording session was on December the 2nd of 79, five days before this thing was in theaters. And um, if you go back and listen to or watch and listen to the original version of the film, you will hear that the bridge of the Enterprise is pretty much dead. They may be stuck in some room tone. To and made of wood. Edits. Yes. And uh, all everything was designed, but there was no, you, you, the sound editors would wait until the picture's locked and say, okay, go ahead and now do your sound. No Chuck, time. Chuck had, expre- had, had played for us over and over again these audio beds that they had created for the film for all different scenes, this whole, you know, effects, uh, sound effects sequences that just never made it into the dub for time. We replaced the explosion of the asteroid in the end of this sequence. And, uh, it was such an anticlimax. Well, it never made sense Because they basically cut to a stock shot of right. an explosion, and no one realized what was going on, and it was, uh, it, it was a last-minute fix that they did. Now, there was one elimination that we did made. Very funny story. Um, the original version following the explosion was uh, a shot of Persis Kambata as Ilea in her navigator's station, uh, bouncing as the Enterprise is bounced. Kind of and let's say certain now. parts of her anatomy um, were bouncing more than were others. More distracting. Right. So when we show this scene to Doug Trumbull, <laughs> he says, ah, she's bouncing too much. And I said, well, we're taking that out. And he says, oh, you're taking out the bounce? <laughs> I said, no, we're taking out the shot. He says, okay, good. <laughs> But uh, that it, it was didn't that match was with that the rest was, of the the rest of the shot. You know, she was bouncing, but the, it was the a shot was cut again because they had no effect. So how are you going to show? You know, but now um, the scene as it was finished. I mean, to me, it's harrowing. It's just harrowing to find to watch. A good point uh, to make is the removal of the obvious statements at this point. Right. Where again, you know, people would say we're out of it, or um, the, the, the the shields new, held, the new screens held. Right. But because they they filmed those lines because. If they didn't come up with an effect that would show us that, somebody had to make it clear to the audience. It became really interesting to have 20 years of, of knowledge and memory of the film, yet having to go back and, and still look at it from the perspective of we're telling the story and not get, get caught in the familiarity of, the, of, the, of what we've seen. Dozens so, of HBO viewings uh, went out the window the day that we brought a print to the Directors Guild, the big theater at the Directors Guild, and uh, watched it and was like, wow. And they were really kind to uh, to screen it uh, two times for us with Bob. That's right. In we fact, actually, the second uh, time we brought yeah. the entire crew from Foundation Imaging mm-hmm. down and on said... The, on the 20th anniversary? It was actually on, 20th on December 7th, 1999. And we celebrated with making an event for Bob. He didn't know about it. We actually... Uh... We had actually hoped to originally have this done for that <laughs> date. Do you remember that? I do. But, uh, you know, Paramount, I mean, at least they eventually said uh, okay and gave us the green light. It took a while to get to that point because my initial conversations with Bob Wise about this was right after George Lucas did his famous changes to the Star Wars trilogy in early 97. And then... Um, there was a lot of talk at that time about other films that were supposedly unfinished. Um, there was never a better argument for that than this picture. Speaking of the of, of how our goal was for having this uh, completed uh, for the tenth anniversary, twentieth twentieth anniversary, of course, the um, the goal was for a theatrical re-release of the fee- of the film. And um, when we went to the studio. Um, there was a, a question of what we could do with this. And in the end, 
Uh, our goal was always for theatrical presentation, but um, we were given an opportunity to do it for DVD. The entire project was designed, planned, still is uh, is ready for um, being completed in the high res, high def, and theatrical uh, format. So that this version, which Bob has now proclaimed is his final version of the film, is um, to, to stand the test of time, should be in its its uh, highest resolution for high def or otherwise. The point is, is that uh, with the 30th anniversary coming out, it's a it's a new goal of mine to see if we. Well, we definitely it. need to get back and do it. Right. Should be done. I think Paramount has to realize that it needs to be done. Um, we're just uh, waiting to see um, when that opportunity will present itself. Yeah, we've had on enough, you know, communications with them about it. But with the 30th anniversary coming out, that's when I'd like to see it uh, ready in time for. Here, McCoy lays it on the line for Kirk and tells him what his problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody has actually stood up to Kirk. We heard that Kirk stood up to an admiral to get the command of the Enterprise back, and now the only person who's on this ship who would dare say this to him um, finally lays on the line what the essential problem of this movie is. The essential problem of the movie is not that this giant cloud is moving towards Earth. Um, it's that Kirk is disconnected. View screens are really big in this. Could like, this be Spa? I'd like to know why, know. when that view screen goes off, is an image of the Partridge family bus there. Well, obviously, in the 23rd century, uh, your wall, your art turns it's into retro. Yeah. Turns into your view screen. Yeah, it's a retro, retro 20th century. Or it's one hell of a big again, game again, of I Simon. Again, I about the things that Bob used to always hate that I would point out. This shot of the door closing. Right. I mean, to me, it's so symbolic. Kirk mm-hmm. is unenlightened. He's like, that's not why I shot that. I'm like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was. You just didn't know it. And then we go to an even darker shot. Um, do you remember how dark this movie looked in theaters? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the space was really black in this <laughs> film. When you were, bet- when you were not orbiting a planet, which you aren't at all in this film other than Earth. Um, there should theoretically not be any light from any stars, which is why Trumbull came up with the concept of the Enterprise illuminating itself. So you go from this Kirk being darkened to the blackness of a space, and then into that comes this uh, Vulcan shuttle. Here's another great uh, bit of Jerry Goldsmith music. Um, not sure if you can actually see this in the picture, maybe in 70 millimeter, but they never did one. Um, that that's the name of that shuttle is actually the Surak. Yes, um, it's announced that it's a Federation registered shuttle. You don't know what it is. It's the music that tells you that it's Spock and that it's Vulcan. And but, wasn't that the only shot, Darren, inside the uh, inside deck? Right. And here again is this connection. You physically see the models connecting. You'd think it would be just as easy to beam him on, and it would be. But a we get this theatrical entrance, as I mentioned before, and b it has that theme of connection. We see the technology connecting to each other. Now the people have to do that too. There's also a point of this uh, here that uh, the mechanical voices were taken away to, you know, have a human being acknowledge that, you know, there's a border. Well, it's not as cold. We even saw that in the 24th century, they didn't have talking computers. There was a lot of talk about talking computers in the early days of computers in the 20th century. 
and at the time that the original Star Trek was on the air, well, guess what? We're now in the 21st century. Do we like talking computers? We have them. They don't sound very good. No. They talked about getting to HAL, but we didn't get to HAL. I like uh, 2001. We don't like them. <laughs> I would like a 2001 HAL. It's a, I mean, the movie's great. It's a... I'd like a 2001 HAL, too. I just don't want him to kill me. Especially since um, the computers, as some of the characters do... State the obvious in a lot of, you know, right. we don't need to be uh, told that the negative helm control, you know, 14 mm -hmm. times. It sound it was a great idea at the time, and there were science advisors, and um, we all respected that and respected what Roddenberry was trying to do, which was to update Star Trek and really make us feel that um, it was a technological wonder, but the technology is um, useless without the people connecting with each other, working together. Nowadays, we all feel plugged into technology. We all feel like we're part of the matrix, right? But um, if we were to really get out there and be so far away from uh, Earth and the place that, we, that has grass and trees, you know, the only thing we'd have is each other, just a bunch of machines. So Spock comes back, and he turns out to be a real jerk. <laughs> and because he's disconnected from himself, he doesn't know who he is. He's he, trying to be Vulcan. He's trying to be uh, less human. He thinks he's looking for V'ger, yeah. but he's not. He's looking for Kirk. We also, there was also, when we were laying out the project, we were talking about what might have been missing and that we always felt that Kirk's performance, that he was missing to a certain degree. And I can't, you know, the, the, I'm so amazed by the edit here that, I really f think we found Kirk. Well, one the, thing the, Bob said we had to pull out was all these, um, hope this isn't a G-rated commentary on a PG movie, but we have to take out every instance of Kirk bitching at somebody, which he did several times. Those all came out. Um, his disconnectedness, I think, plays fine and fully there. Um, that cut of uh, Spock walking out, cut to Kirk and McCoy, and then boom, you get Sandy Courage's original series theme. It shows you where we need to get to. Mm -hmm. We need to get to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and that music all being back together. What we actually found in the script, uh, earlier drafts of the script at least, was that there was a moment where Spock is walking down the hall, and we felt that there was a point where he needed to lose it a little. And there was a, a point where he walks into a... Um, yeah, okay. was it was, a, was, a, was like a, a separate room uh, I think it was it might have been a well he just separates himself from everybody that's right and he loses his composure for a moment mm -hmm. and that really showed the pain that he was, probably the struggle that he yeah because he as we know Vulcans have emotions they just suppress mm -hmm. them and maybe Spock had this un, unexpected reaction of seeing Kirk and Moho again and uh, Spock uh, 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 Bob's wink just now Mm -hmm. Bob is Bob has this amazingly charming wink. That, yes, that that Shatner was channeling Bob, Bob yeah, there. That's clear. Last time I remember him doing it was when we did the sing along sound of music at the Hollywood Bowl with eighteen thousand people and that famous iconic shot of helicopter coming into Julie Andrews, and um, I looked at him and he gave me that wink. He knew, you know, I've the power. I've gotten so much feedback about this uh, officer's lounge shot and the uh, nacelles showing out the window. We actually talked about going far more elaborate with this set itself, right? Yeah. Take which down which the walls we probably could now. But again, I think we were, it was good that we were restricted. We kept it feeling like the same movie. But that was one that we debated, and uh, ultimately we went for it. You were saying, Dan? Well, it's just that, uh, you know, where is this 
lounge and uh, what are we seeing behind there and uh, why are the stars seeming to go sideways and things like that. And it, this is the view that you would get. I, I put a camera in our in our model and put it at this location. We're figuring that this is pretty near the large wreck deck that we saw the level earlier. level above it. Right. And uh, that this is the this is the upper level of the wreck deck behind the uh, the big atrium, and this is the view of the engines that you get with that lens. So if you physically were on the ship looking out that window, that's what you would see. Well, we had never seen part of the Enterprise from inside the Enterprise. You'd never seen the connection of the inside and the outside, and we thought that it was other than Spock's uh, and how they don't give it a second thought. Right. Nobody's standing looking out the window right. marveling about it because they look at it every day. Um, I'm reminded here also of the production designer uh, Hal Michelson, who we lost very recently. Mm, yeah, just a few wonderful, ago. wonderful man. And I remember him really talking sweet. about this uh, set, how it was basically thrown together. It wasn't anything like the large expanse that it was mm-hmm. originally storyboarded as. And he got cardboard boxes from the back lot and, and upholstered them. And that that's what's in the background for a lot of this. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Darren, I must say also the way that the composition ended up here was perfect. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it looked like that was there first, and then they, they, then you stayed to the actors around it. But it was actually done 20 years later. That must be the bar back there. Either that or the, perf- <laughs> the perfume counter. Right. <clears throat> Samples uh, testing. You see how they have behind McCoy is a little tubular thing with what looked like greenery in it. It looks like uh, like a hydroponic uh, garden or something. I'm not going to talk about what Scotty's saying or where it came from, but I did see the subtitles that they put on the closed caption, the the text track. Yes. They had no clue what he was saying. (laughs) That's good. But you see, originally, I mean, I think that the computer was going red alert over and over and over. It was the red alert for the visually impaired. Right. In case you missed the red lights and the people running around. And the big sign that says red alert. Right, that there was a um, voice telling you that the ship was now on red alert. Right. Now we start, I love that. There's that, the Burger King logo right. behind it. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Captain, I lost Starfleet, but in case you want any French fries, I can get some. You know, yeah, um, that's not a Burger King logo. That music. It always looked that way. All right, right, that music that came in on the shot of the cloud on the view screen when they first see it. Um, that incredible um, pipe organ that was at the Fox scoring stage, which was taken out about 10 years ago. Uh, it's the same organ used on The Sound of Music and uh, anything else that was recorded um, at Fox over the years, going all the way back to the 30s. And um, that is, it's the haunted house. That's what Jerry's telling you there. This may be a cloud, God knows how big it is. Actually, we know how big it is. Right. But um, Now it's over, two, over two AUs in diameter. Okay, which is twice the distance from Earth. <laughs> from the Earth to, to the, the sun. sun. Okay. So instead of 82 AUs, I think Chuck did a great job getting it down to two. It That's sounds like right. a pregnant pause. But um, anyway, despite the vastness of that idea, this is really, this is really um, a bunch of kids facing the neighborhood haunted house. Right. And what's going to come on if you had a scene like that is this scary organ. You know, um, Jerry was incredibly, uh, had this incredible instinct for capturing exactly what um, you need to be feeling. And in a movie like this, which was which um, had so many delays with the effects, and the script was not quite as honed as um, it could have really been had they taken a little more time with it. Um, 
but he manages to fill in that um, those missing links incredibly. There are people, probably from uh, older than we are, who will mention um, some of Jerry's scores from the '60s as the greatest thing he ever wrote. To me, there's just no competition. This is just there is no comparison. No comparison. That's right. Which is, it, it, I always found that amazing, considering he didn't have anything to write to. Mm-hmm. And he did, um, again, it was very rushed. There was a lot of times where they had no footage. So they would record seven versions of Ilya's theme. And Lionel Newman would come in and record versions of the, um, of the Star Trek theme. But they also had the, the, the advantage of the, that they listened to the music and they sent Jerry back a few times to come up with Yeah, he did so six or seven a... cues that didn't yeah. work out and, uh, before he came up with the main Star Trek theme, which is now the most famous thing he's ever written. It became the opening of Next Generation, of course. He got uh, Sandy Courage himself in to do the quotes of the original Star Trek television show theme. And then later on, Sandy became his main orchestrator mm-hmm. on, throughout the 90s. And then I think Fred Steiner, who had written some original series scores, came in to um, put some of the cues together, like the one that just ended, I yes. believe. Now, this scene went through a lot of uh, changes. There were basically two different versions of it. There were some uh, mislabeled um, uh, numbers in the script, so things got edited incorrectly. To those of you who, uh, who, who caught it, this little in-joke is the Spocks around the, uh, the uh, warp engine right there. What's funny is years later, I'm not even going to talk about what it is, but if anyone notices that years later, I went to Richard Anderson, at a, uh, who was one of the original sound designers on the film, and it was something that he always intended to put in, but never had time to put it in. And when he saw this version, he was so happy because it was exactly where he was planning to put it. That little great. sound effect mm-hmm. that was there. Because about it, it's pretty much the only place you can have that effect, that sound effect. Unless you put it over Chekhov. That's right. right. Added added footage here of um, Major Barrett, Mrs. Roddenberry, entering um, the bridge to um, tend to Chekhov's wound, and we find out that Ilya has uh, healing ability. Again, this idea of the physical connection between people, that was missing in the 79 version entirely. Um, We took advantage of one of the unused Jerry Goldsmith cues to um, put a little score in that um, sequence. Bob kept saying, I need to see Decker. Um, we need a shot of Decker, who you see him from the neck down there. Um, and uh, I went to the cutting script, the continuity script, which has all of the numbers of what, where all the slates were, and I said, Bob, you did one take of that. And um, I've had them looking for uh, that number in the cans that came in and uh, that they were looking through. And I said, we can't find it. It just isn't there. I don't think we can get that cut. That's probably the one thing um, he specifically asked for that we couldn't do. Again, he wanted to foreshadow that uh, what ultimately happens to Decker and Ilya. Meanwhile in space. Now we get back to, uh, again, um, some slight recutting here to what it was um, originally, because, again, there was some interactive lighting that didn't match up because of uh, mislabeled um, slates. And um, you had a shot of Decker that didn't uh, match up with, he was leaning over the desk in one shot and standing there looking at the screen in another shot. And then it all climaxed with um, an effect that didn't come in. An effect that looked like, well, in the final uh, film, that was a jump cut. 
or to, like a light to, bulb going to nothing out. on the screen. And we finally have a sound effect for the transmission there. And I would never, ever um, have any problem believing that that wasn't done in 1979. Yeah. That was one of the most prominent goals, was that we don't go over the top, you know, showing off what's possible now. It was to embrace everything that was possible at the time and match it to be that you can't tell what was new, what was old, what we pulled an effects element and, and reused, what was... Uh, computer generated or not what you know it was the goal was that everything would be flawless and invisible to the viewer it's the greatest compliment or at least I, as flawed as the original footage right or as dirty as the original yeah. footage for that matter um, that's why we did have to put like a green pass onto things to match it right yeah we've passed the, the film was supposed to go through a much much more serious uh uh, dirt and cleanup, uh, but in the end, what was released was released, and um, we felt that everything needed to be consistent, also, just to to um, to make it match. You couldn't have one suddenly pristine, clean shot where everything else is dirty. Again, that last exchange that just uh, took place there between um, Kirk and Spock and Decker, that was originally cut out of the film. The reason why things were cut out of the film is because part of the deal of meeting that date was also meeting a running time of precisely not to exceed 130 minutes maximum. And when uh, the effects work was not in, they needed to cut back dialogue in order to accommodate it when it did come in. Of course, then, as said before, not having any opportunity to weigh one against the other and decide maybe we can cut some of these long effects and put back in some of this dialogue that we trimmed. There was never that opportunity. So that's the reason why a lot of those things were cut. Put in on a network broadcast in the early 80s, uh, the, the fans had a very positive reaction to it, so much so that Paramount released that version on videotape, and it was the f official version. Um, Bob was not informed about it, and so he was not happy about it, really because of the state that it was in. It was sort of, uh, it was almost like a work print cut into it, and then we found that they even did that to some prints, it was a sit long and prosper. Uh, Remember the first the, the show year it was ninety one. The ninety one the where they actually went back in and took, with the exception of Kirk leaving the Enterprise, they printed those sequences and reincorporated them into the prints. And so uh, when we called, even the when we went in, to the, in, yeah, the studio, we said we want to make sure we get Bob's theatrical cut. Uh, they said absolutely, we have that one, and they they delivered it to us, and we actually found that it was yet it was the best prints that they had, which was. The sit long and prosper, right? Which uh, I wasn't opposed marathon. to seeing. Um, well, Bob wanted to look at his film as this is right. the way I left it. That's where it became um, so difficult for Bob through this process, and even to to, to you know up to his death, to figure out that, what the movie was. No, but I mean, he did. He finished the film in the form of the director's edition. And he's so happy with the film, and and it's funny. He'd had a smile that I hadn't seen in him smile a certain way for anything but how proud he was of this project. And it touched my heart when when the publicist from Paramount uh, handed us a photo where it captured that mm -hmm. that moment, and it, it was amazing. But the problem is, is that today the film is still being seen in the in the the rough cut version from seventy nine right it's the, shown on the high def and satellite channels right and um you know the uh special longer version of course was out, but I haven't seen that being shown any other way, but the original version 
isn't Bob's finished picture. And, you know, it does have a historical significance, but if you did your did work that couldn't be completed and then you completed the work, you'd want people to appreciate what your overall final goal was, which was Bob's goal to have this be and stand as the final and and finished version of the movie. So when people think of Star Trek The Motion Picture by Robert Wise, this is what they get, and that's what he wanted. And, you know, it's it's still disappointing to see that that other version is still being seen. Not that it doesn't have historical significance, but, you know, you finish the film, you want people to see it the way that it was intended. Well, I think eventually we'll get to a point where it is done. I'm optimistic about it getting done, and I think that the other film should be preserved as well, because I remember cutting school to go see it the day it opened. And I'll tell you, it's not in the way that I cut school. Um, I'm, I was the kind of kid who handed in term papers way ahead of the due date. But I cut school the day this opened by telling the teacher that I had that I'm not coming to class tomorrow, I'm going to see Star Trek. And she said, <laughs> okay. So I went to school actually till the first couple of classes, till noon, then left. Went to go see it opening day. I know that um, that that you guys have have mentioned this. I'm, I think I'm in agreement that, at least by now, with some of the, the comments, that I'd like to see um, some type of high definition box set that does have the original version, so that it can be appreciated and then has. Um, well, I mean, on the DVD of this that came out, all has the direct right, edition, uh, the uh, clips from the original version and the TV version, for that matter, were included there. Um, but the focus, having multiple versions on that release would have taken the emphasis away from this. And I think that was the whole point of this release, was to say, this is the director's edition. Now, I think it uh, has sold itself. People really like it. Uh, there's no way that anybody can um, look at it and not see it as a valuable commodity. Um, to somebody, as I said before, who had never seen Star Trek, they would, they would, for a million reasons, would be more attracted to this version. There's no reason to not uh, release it. And I think... Um, you know, we've gotten into the home video industry enough to um, get to the point where we can just put all the existing versions there in one set. Be nice. Here we have the I'd buy uh, it. <laughs> the introduction of the uh, V'ger vessel itself, and uh, that, of course, was done by Dykstra's team. Right, we made a transition there through um, that cloud sequence, which was Trumbull's right. team, right, coming into Dykstra, who did the. Uh, who did the physical the model. physical model of the Vider craft? Um, now these sequences are very interesting because again they came under a lot of criticism by people over the years, even people who like the film. That you spend three four minutes going through a cloud, you spend three four minutes traveling across a vessel. Um, once you and again they were kept at that length because the footage was cut first before effects work came in. Then when those uh, effect shots came in, they were simply dropped into the holes waiting for them. Uh, Jerry scored it, and out it went. Uh, you know, I can't say enough about Jerry, who I... Um, he had a reputation of being very, very gruff, but I gotta say, for the number of times that I got together with him um, over this project, he just was... I thought he was just the dearest man. Very, very funny. We had a fantastic experience of debuting 20 minutes of this version of the film at the Hollywood Bowl with uh, my good friend John Mouchery conducting the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. 
Featuring the uh, live performance of the blaster beam instrument. Right, which we found. Uh, Craig Huxley came in and uh -huh. brought the beam. And that, you, that, should, that, you should talk about the call you made to him about, uh, do you have a blaster beam? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, getting that actually on the stage and um, doing several cues, 20 minutes worth of footage, and sitting there with Bob Wise that was amazing. and Jerry. And we also did sections from Planet of the Apes that night and mm -hmm. um, um, Alien. Yes. There's, there so, was nothing in my life like seeing the premiere of your work in, 18, in front of 18,500 people, people and they with your it. director and, and your composer and, and just showing these, these amazing things to everybody. And just We were joined that night by a couple of other fantastic people. John Povel, who was the associate producer on the film, um, was actually on the project with the, as Roddenberry's assistant back when it was going to be a TV series, mm -hmm. and his wife... Michelle, who is the first person to speak English in the film, right? right. I think she's the communications officer at Epsilon the Epsilon Nine, Nine who, who first reports on this uh, Klingon um, uh, listening, their, 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 their spy satellite right. into the Klingon Empire. Now, this sequence was uh, trimmed down slightly. Yeah, again, I started to talk about that, and of course, went off on a tangent, but... Um, it was very obvious candidates when you for for cutting down because you could still tell the story um, and significantly gain back some of your running time to put back some dialogue in, and we had an extraordinary benefit on this because I told Bob what I wanted to do. I said, "Here's the opportunity. Here is to not mess too much with the music. I could go in and not look at the picture, and um, do a music edit on it. Bring these two cues." down and then recut the picture to that um, because the music is really what drives it uh, sonically. It's, it's the dominating element um, of these two sequences. So I spoke to Jerry about that and he said, I always expected that some of those scenes would be cut down. So I deliberately wrote music that would lend itself to that with a lot of these repeating patterns. And I should also point out um, that this uh, V'ger motif that we hear um, some of it is a dark version of Ilea's theme, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of it is in the time signature of six-eighths, which, again, helps us with that whole um, motif Six, of, right. this, of the sixes, um, that everything has to do with V'ger seems to revolve around, but of course Jerry says, no, I had no idea about that. It's funny, the only piece of V'ger that I ever saw on this show was uh, we just passed a like a circular dish that was being uh, held by a uh, you know another little long right. extension coming from the right, but in the circle was there. And I was visiting Pat McClung once, and he Model pulled out of a closet you know this little thing about the size of the headpiece of the sapphire, uh, little that was circle it? and piece. Just surprising that it was just a. Small by the way, thing. this shot I need to interrupt you, Dave, because this is you know in every project there are things that get away that you can't do. This was one. It's one of the ones um, that Bob said. Yeah, that was on our back, list. If you ever go back. It was on our list. We had to give a few things back. And um, the Enterprise actually needs to do a 180-degree turn there so that it's then facing the end of V'ger, which was the order that Kirk gave. We simply didn't, uh, weren't able to make that change there. This is one of our shots. Now, this was a really, really uh, difficult scene because um, we kept trying to find the original element 
to go back and, and print it a little bit. Wasn't uh, this filmed like as a reflection? Well, it was filmed as a reflection in, in folded mylar. This right. shot right here where it's going in the foreground across, we actually had to stabilize each side of the frame because the left-hand side popped. Independently to, of the right. Right, independently of the right. And in doing so, um, we were a little, I was a little concerned because the probe, in order to keep the left and right-hand side stable, the probe in the center would have to be wider. And what we actually realized in doing that was that it was kind of okay because it was in the foreground, whereas before it was just the same size as, as it was anywhere else in the entire sequence. But because it was in the foreground, it was okay for it to be wider. So it, was, it just kind of worked. But this whole sequence, um, you know, was digitally touched to make it uh, work a little better and be a little bit more um, Well, yeah, the stable. I, shooting it in the Mylar and then having to do the optical processing on it, I mean, it got all unstable. And if you were to compare this to what the film originally had, I mean, it just was all over the place in terms of registration. And Darren and I talked about, not that long ago, I don't think, um, about how the distortion that you do get around the axis of that probe um, kind of lends itself to um, uh, what's going on. Because you would expect that this thing is so bright, it's so full of energy, that... Um, that its its energy field might even be distorting light or you know matter or around optical. it. Yeah, yeah. And this is also where we lost one of the security guards in the uh, original assembly of the film. Right. That was where taken did he out. Come? He come yeah. from. And that was ta yeah that was taken out because at the end of the film, um, Uhura has to give the um, casualty list, right? And she has to say, um, or, or Kirk does. Right. And um, he has to say Decker, Ilya, and uh, Ensign so-and-so. Right. And it's just like, well, who's that? Why do we care? It just took away from the impact that we lost two of our main characters. And these are some great animation effects by Robert Swarth and his uh, animation team. Uh, the, the moray pattern that uh, was established for the energy patterns of V'ger. We were also talking about if we actually did find the original um, film footage that they used, it probably would have, wouldn't work as well as the distortion for that scene right. with the brightness and how everything looked different because it's so radically different when you get to appearing. I was love this shot where Kirk has the tricorder. Yeah, it hands it off to ends hey, in hand. Thank you, Thing. <laughs> and again, the, the reason for that distortion and the reason why they shot it in the, uh, in the pellicle or the, the mylar sheet was that they basically pressed it to eliminate the gigantic lights, light rig and the operator that was walking around the bridge. I think this. there was one shot even where the elbow of the operator... There was one shot where you out. could see the elbow and we removed it. And there was another shot where I think the shadow underneath the bottom of mm -hmm. it, I think that might still be there, but it goes by so fast. Which brings up a really funny thing that Darren and I discovered while we were looking through the photos of the models, uh, of what models existed from this film. And we found that that probably sold at auction now at Paramount, but we found that that light rig still exists in the archive. <laughs> they walked around the, the bridge. That's funny. I think, when are you going to reuse this thing? Right. Well, for the next time, V'ger. That's right. But it was funny that after all these years, it's still there. Here's Marcy Lafferty, who was yes, Bill Shatner's the... wife at the time. As Chief DeFalco, replacing uh, Ilya at the navigator station. What? Love, I love this cue by Jerry. With that that shot where they were first got tractor beamed in, there's a great uh, sampling of the uh, the beam, the big long um, block of wood with um, strings. Um, when do you guys want to explain it. how it really works? The and baseball then, bat and, and everything. Just take a bat and whack it. 
it's it's a giant electric guitar, 18 feet long, and uh, it's this big aluminum box with strings on it. Mm-hmm. And the thing it, I always found interesting is that, and you had an artillery shell that you'd hold on the on that would the, tune it, right, right, and you'd move it back and forth, and then somebody hit it with a baseball bat yeah. to get the sound. I loved that John. Mal Cherry had that demoed before we did the sequence yeah. from Star Trek, which was great. Um, but I also, I also love the fact that that's, um, it was a very revolutionary idea and, um, and it really makes this score memorable in a similar way that, um, the score for the day the earth stood still in 1951 by Bernard Herrmann was revolutionary for the theremin, mm-hmm. which was where you passed your hands, um, through the sound wave, and it made that that kind of sound. Oh, here's, here's a, here's a the, composite of uh, um, 65 millimeter Enterprise footage with VistaVision V'ger model footage. I also the think this is one of the shots that we amazing. that we color timed to uh, shut off the warp engines. I right. don't think uh, was it that one. I believe that was one of the mic. I think we did a couple of them. But there, there, I'm just marveling. Can the, you imagine how? I mean, you know, people don't have to deal with labs now yeah. when they do effects work. They sit at computers and the computers do their thing. And this and is another one. That one definitely. Darren, explain because. Uh, well, I, I actually, I, I actually believe, guys, that it was this shot was the first one, not the previous one. I think the previous one was correct. That could be. Well, the point was that the point was that uh, the Kirk orders the engines to be shut down, right. and when, as we saw, that when it launched from dry dock, when the um, when the warp engines are off, the deflector dish, the main drive engines, the main drive, right. engines. He at least going. in this film, in this film, God, yes, we that's sound right. Like such geeks, well, yeah, that's no, but, it, but we have to. But, but the deflector dish light is colored uh, more gold hued. It's blue when the impulse, the main drive, and right. the warp engines are online, and he orders them shut down. So therefore, at that point, it should be. Um, gold, not blue. And it was mostly consistent with that in the film, except for a number of shots where that wasn't, where it wasn't accurate. And while we were doing the transfer of the Notice film, the six points. we uh, adjusted the color of the deflector dish, which is kind of funny. It's a way of our, we've actually been able to tell if that was same transfers being used and the high def that's being presented right now, the original version has the other colored deflector dish from when we did the transfer. Now that we're inside V'ger, this was again taken over by Trumbull's group, and uh, I believe that this miniature was actually headed up by Greg Jean. And it looks very similar to some of the, their work together on Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. And again, it had that six-sided, almost Star of David um, imagery there. The editor on this film was Todd Ramsey, who I worked with also and interviewed him for a documentary on the making of John Carpenter's The Thing. And um, he was an apprentice editor on The Hindenburg, and, uh, which Bob did uh, just prior to this. And um, then he was given the task of his first feature film to edit, being Star Trek The Motion Picture. And incidentally, um, well, first of all, he um, was part of this endeavor as well and um, uh, liked everything that we were doing and made some suggestions of his own and was very supportive and it was great to have him aboard with us. Um, and he was very, very complimentary of saying, you know, if Bob, anything Bob wants to do. Right. You know, it made him look better. Uh, in fact, I, um, one little um, piece of trivia is that the voice of Starfleet Command after the transporter accident is Todd Ramsey's voice. But uh, that was that was not actually intended. It was that they were in such a rush that he threw that in as a temp. And, and there it was. And, and then when he saw the and film, the motion there, was, there was this this line there, and he was going, "Wait a second! How did, 
But uh, interesting um, history around this film is that um, Bob Wise, for anybody who doesn't know, was the editor of Citizen Kane at the start of his long, illustrious career, which was done for Orson Welles at RKO in 1941. The room was that it was cut in, that he worked in, was at the corner of Melrose Avenue and Gower Street in Hollywood, which is the southwest corner of the Paramount facility now. It was then RKO. Um, and if uh, people won't be bored by some history, that lot, uh, when RKO went under as a movie studio, was purchased by Desilu. Uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, who had made a fortune on I Love Lucy and in a brilliant uh, business deal, Desi Arnaz held on to the ownership of the negatives of I Love Lucy, um, which then became value valuable when um, television grew and new stations came into the market and then suddenly uh, the rerun was invented. And um, then he, in the late 50s, sold the I Love Lucy negatives back to CBS and with that money, he purchased RKO, turned it into Desilu Studios, and it was there that Star Trek was made, and they went into the TV production business with Mission Impossible and the Andy Griffith Show and Danny Thomas and um, The Untouchables, lots of shows. That's where Star Trek came to be made and uh, was part of. And then in 1967, Desilu was sold to Gulf and Western, as was Paramount, which coincidentally was the lot next door. So literally they knocked the wall down and what was RKO and uh, Paramount was now, all they all became Paramount, 1967, which is how they got Star Trek. So when the movie was made, the film originally in 79 was edited by Todd Ramsey in the very same room that Bob cut Citizen Kane. We unfortunately didn't get to work there when we did the director's edition. We were in a building, um, the Paul Hager post-production building. Um, and uh, it was really fantastic to have Bob coming back to that lot where he got his start. And in fact, the building, um, which is called, I think it's the Valentino building, was an apartment house um, when Marathon Street was there. And uh, apartment houses and, and private homes were there. And Bob's first apartment was in the Marath It was on Marathon Street in the Val what is now the Valentino Building. So it was really a home coming for him to come back where he to the lot where he first came on in 1938. I think it was carrying film cans around as an uh, editorial assistant. And then, of course, um, a little uh, parking lot and billboard company called Viacom eventually grew into becoming a media conglomerate and bought Paramount and CBS. And uh, so now CBS has uh, Star Trek as well as I Love Lucy and other Desi Lu shows. I always loved being walking on the, to the corner of the lot and seeing that they kept the RKO globe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's still there. That's still up over there. Very and, historic uh, area. I also remember, I think we used this in the, in the, in the docs, but... Uh, Majel explaining how when when she, they brought Star Trek into uh, to Lucy, she was uh, commenting that uh, oh Star Trek and she envisioned that this was a show that they followed stars around like they were going to have people following right. her around so she greenlit the show right. What a simple little mistake. Yep. Uh, she was the first uh, female head of a TV production facility. Um. Major was a good friend of hers because she was part of the Desilu players. So there's a lot of history there.
a lot of great Hollywood, old Hollywood history there. And um, it kind of, uh, it all led to this film. That wall behind them we've seen in every other Star Trek. I think so, yes. Uh, incarnation since. The, uh, to go back a little bit, we're now dealing with um, Persis Kambata playing the probe manufactured in the image of Ilya, whom it, it absorbed. And the sequence where she appears in the sonic shower in what we presume is her own chambers, I guess her own uh, quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a change was made there basically just to the sound because you had initially the computer voice reading the temperature in the, in the shower. Um, whereas the, uh, the point really should have been about the appearance of this, what amounts to a robot in the image of uh, Ilea. And um, again, it's like this technology has literally taken over. Uh, she's not human, but she, but you know what I mean. She's, technology has superseded, you know, a a physical living being, and that's the danger that um, this entire crew faces. They have to get past that. They have to conquer that. They have also, to not let that happen to them. It's also interesting that the the earlier scripts had Ilea as Tasha. That's mm-hmm. right. Which um, I assume was the name that. Uh, There's a lot of riffs in this that um, were, to coin a phrase, I guess our term, Roddenberryisms. Um, this relationship between Decker and Ilea was really redone in the pilot episode of Star Trek The Next Generation eight years later, Encounter at Farpoint, with Will Riker. Mm-hmm. Even the way that um, the names that Roddenberry comes up with are similar. And as uh, Dave pointed out, uh, Tasha. Um, wasn't that originally the name for Troy? And yes. Did they switch? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, they, they were all riffs. To a degree, Roddenberry was... Um, this was Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek, this movie, really, more than almost anything else. And um, he supervised the first season of The Next Generation, and you really saw that influence and what he was going for, to the point where he um, wanted to use Jerry's theme song, even though uh, Dennis McCarthy, who's a good friend of yours, Dave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, wrote a theme, um, but uh, it was uh, rejected and replaced with uh, Jerry's theme. The electronic hopscotch. Yes, that's right. Digital hopscotch, used to say. The, the, when the, we were in production, there were so many people who were coming up with this crazy idea that since Enterprise was coming up, that we were going to go back into those pictures on the rec deck and take out that this Enterprise history Enterprise panel and, and replace and it, put it in NX01. Yeah, the, the Enterprise Enterprise. And they were so sure that was going to happen. And there was never any communication to do it. There was never any plan to do it. I don't think we would have done it had they even asked at the time because it wasn't, it wasn't necessary. Now, okay, in addition to Digital Hopscotch, Dave, you also had a name for this game. Yeah, building, creating uh, the Fortress of Solitude. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if we had closer shot of that, you'd see these little yeah. crystalline things rising up. <laughs> yeah. But um, Actually, wasn't it you who came up with that one? Oh, listen, oh, have, have, have we remember. broken through technology and, and maybe made a little... Uh, have we reached the human spirit? I think she's just realizing that all these games are really boring. <laughs> But no, you have the to machine, play it with four people. The machine is going to take over. You know, you have to really uh, give credit to her performance in these scenes. She's walking around 
um, in something that uh, if the wind blows the wrong way, you really would, we would be into R, okay, not mm. PG, in high heels, okay, and with this tiny little wire around her neck holding that little um, red light. We added the uh, interior V'ger out the window there. There were lots of angles of that, and there was supposed to be all this activity and stuff going around, which reminded me on the printed page of kind of like the Krell from Forbidden Planet, mm -hmm. of all this machinery and stuff moving around. Again, it was like originally supposed to be much, much more elaborate, and there was a great, there's a great artist named Robert McCall who was brought in to design a lot of concepts for the uh, interior of Vigor and what all that technology was doing. Right, particularly for the Spock walk later on. Mm -hmm. And for the climax. Right. And that went back, actually, to um, when it was a TV pilot, what right? What a gorgeous shot. There's the... Uh, Dave is giving me the motion here. This is um, Jerry doing the... Uh, the windshield wipers. The Enterprise windshield wipers. Now, we had a lot of fun when we did this project. And, again, we mentioned <laughs> the continuity of Enterprise. Um, we joked in um, some lighter moments about doing our own bit of continuity, and one joke was to replace this guy with uh, oh. Mr. Arix from Star Trek: <laughs> oh. The Animated Series. Um, I thought that would have been a great idea, but but here I love this when they go out of frame. You wonder what Why are they is doing? Spock going down <laughs> What's there? he doing yeah. there? Maybe he held that a little bit long. Again, focus on um, the people, the relationships. This scene was. Um, edited with Bob together from two different versions of the scene that had seen previously. And again, that physical connection here is something touching something else. That's a motif that just goes all through this film. She eventually takes it off. She doesn't want that connection. Didn't we um, kind of picture the, the Spock walk as Spock on ice? The music? No, it was um, the cloud. You always said that at the cloud queue. Spock on ice. The, the cue called the cloud. Just evoked a different image. Again, there's some reaction shots here, like that one of Majel, really good, and that one of McCoy. That wasn't in the original, it stayed on a wide shot. And as this process evolved, Bob really saw, no, we needed the people. We needed to focus on the people. I don't recall seeing that headgear in the Christie's auction. Wonder where it went. Sinead O'Connor keeps it. Probably. <laughs> but it's an awfully Again, all mechanism. those wonderful percussion uh, implements that Jerry put in here, the, the water phones. And, right. um, One that sounds like a rusty gate. Yes, uh-huh. The Super Ball, I think, is in here. And, of course, the beam is always with anything to do with the, the V'ger and the Ilea probe is there. I really miss Jerry. Great scores. He was really amazingly great. inventive. And there's also anything to do with Spock has that distant native percussion. Yeah, I doubt, I highly doubt that Jerry sat and watched episodes of the old series. Um, and, and, um, but somehow or other, he got that. He got that Spock came from an ancient civilization that probably had some uh, violence in its past. So you hear, like, just it could be an innocuous thing like Spock sitting at his station talking. But it's like and echo, in the background, echoes of this, violence. This, right, this the primitive. distant, primitive drums in, the, in, in somewhere in the distant past. We took out here the, um, the, instructions. the thruster, thruster suit audio instruction manual. Uh, we figured that, of all people, Spock would know how to run one. And um, 
again, it was that we stop to deal with technology so much in this original script, and it was a very cool idea at the time. But um, if when Bob looked at this film, he saw that that was wrong. And if he had if he had previewed it in 1979, he would have seen that that was wrong. That uh, the technology is v'ger, and and uh, if you're dealing, the people are dealing with each other. Our main family of characters, it has to be focused on their relationships and what's going on in their own minds. I think this is also, as I said um, earlier, this is probably the only science fiction movie about going out into space that's actually about going inside things. Right. And, and again, that, what it's about is get in, we're getting inside your, your own mind. We're getting inside the human psyche here, and these people are going to have to get inside their own brains and figure out what is wrong with them. And really what is wrong with them is that they need each other. Well, this is the beginning of the Spock walk sequence that was originally going to be quite different in the original script. And they had shot some of it when Kirk and Spock were originally going to go out together and explore the interior of V'ger. The memory wall. As as a quick point of, uh, before you continue, Darren, mention this change is coming. Is up that here, yeah. um, again to, to to heighten the jeopardy that people felt in the picture? This orifice opens, and it used to just sit there as Spock goes through. And one of the last changes that uh, our team were able to, to get was to have it closed, just you know, right behind him. Right. It obviously needed to be there. It obviously was a still photo in the beginning, uh, in the original version. It needed to be there. It was one of those things that they just had to let go. Now. Um, Again, it's like a, Spock is going on this incredible odyssey. It is very evocative of 2001. Uh, again, this is a, a lot of Trumbull influence here because he's the one that came in and suggested that, you know what, this memory wall sequence doesn't work. It's boring. It's dull. It's not engaging in any way. Trumbull actually was brought on at around the time that they were actually shooting the memory wall sequence. Right. And Trumbull was realizing that this, guys, this isn't going to work. Even you have a, a marvelous set and interesting things, but in the end, it's going to look like two guys hanging on wires. And right. there was nowhere for them to really, get, and no other way to shoot it because it was fil- it was shot, designed so uh, two-dimensionally one angle, yeah. that there was only one angle to shoot the whole thing in. But again, he employed this fantastic concept of first-person cinema. I mean, look at this. Look at this sequence. You know, prior to computers. That you could film a, a, it's astounding. A, a, an amazing sequence that looks like that. And it makes my head ache thinking about the, the uh, optical work that they had to wait through all the lab work to get and see what they had. Yeah. A lot of this work is actually Robert McCall illustrations that were put on the animation stand. That's right. Like this one. Actually, that the center, uh, the, the space lips, as it was called, mm-hmm. uh, was a, an actual physical model that they made. And didn't we find that too? <laughs> Yes, we it, found that. It also, be- shall I say, has some sexual overtones to it. And there's the often comment about it being uh, Miss Piggy noticeable in there, and it's not. Or Darth Vader, all yeah. kinds of... Um, yeah, it, it was just coincidental. It just shows you how uh, abstract images will let people see what they want to see. But you see, this is on the surface about Spock going inside V'ger and finding out what's in there. But this is actually journey into his own mind to figure out what's going on with him. And once in there, he realizes that subconsciously, now it's going to be externalized, what's missing, what he needs to do is to make this touch. So he's going to reach out and uh, touch this uh, sensor that represents V'ger. And what happens? 
it, he can't, he doesn't want to connect it. He backs away. He's thrown away from it. And interestingly, Ilea being the most uh, arguably passionate character, right. even though she's, Starfleet has forced her to not be. But you see, that's why that scene where she heals Chekhov is so important. Right. Uh, it's this, the most passionate character being combined with the most dispassionate being of V'ger uh, makes an interesting combination, and it's uh, it's very full of symbolism. And once again, it's like you could very easily scan for um, uh, somebody coming through that orifice and then beaming them in. And that might have been practical, but I mean, this idea of Kirk getting in and going into this vacuum chamber after his friend, I mean, that's what Star Trek is all about. And that it was those kind of moments that you needed to find everyone you could and uh, and play them up. The other problem with that sequence was the... Um that, that that was one of the reasons why Bob didn't like the special longer version is that they originally had this uh, extended sequence of Kirk leaving the Enterprise before going to see Spock, which again just lengthened the whole sequence well, of him going into this this spacesuit. I have to go out and I have to get him, and he goes. The outside, idea of him and you see him going was good, right? You see him leaving the ship, then only for, for then for Spock to show up. But the spacesuit that he was wearing was from the memory wall sequence. Right, it didn't match. So it's like while he's out in space, he would have had to have changed suits, so it didn't match for continuity. Not to mention that they put in as part of that scene on television and on videotape the the plate for what needed to have a matte painting of the Enterprise saucer yeah. around it that was never done. So and, and um, it's funny for the scenes that we transferred that and put that on the second disc, you can see all the scaffolds. Right, you saw the people walking into the commissary practically. Yeah. And the reason that they changed the design of the spaceships was so that we could see the reflection of all this happening around suits. Spock on Spock's, when we're still looking at Spock's face. I remember that um, you and I, Darren, were talking about completing the mat on the on the shot that and, and, that mat shot uh, of Kirk coming out of the, right right and and leaking, and leaking it as but you know at least leaking it out as here's here's one of the uh, additional shots from the director's edition but we realized that that would have been it would have been something that could have really backfired instead of something that would have been fun. It could have been something that can say, well, these guys, you know, the people who are putting this thing together don't realize that he's wearing the wrong spacesuit or that, uh, that, that it would get the expectations to be that, oh, the memory wall is going to be back. And there was no, never a plan for the memory wall to be back. It didn't work. It wasn't going back. But um, we just didn't feel that that was, you know, while it was a fun idea, and I know you, you rendered it. Right there. They're one of the most important moments in this film and in all of Star Trek, where Spock says, I was wrong. I should have known. I was looking for logic and unemotion. But do you know what? I was wrong. This is what it's all about. Just brilliant, simple scene. We took out also another incident of um, Kirk snapping, biting McCoy's head off there. And of stating the obvious, you know, Kirk uh, had a line there, what questions? Well, it was better to have Spock just continue his monologue. Um, and the tale of this scene had him summarizing right. a machine planet sending a machine to Earth looking for its creator, you know, and um, it, again, to make sure that the audience understood what was going on. But when we viewed this with Bob, he says, don't we know that already? Mm -hmm. I said, do you think so? He says, yes, take it out. More great examples of the uh, split diopter. Yes. Yeah, which has you allows you to have two focal planes in one shot, 
um, on, on a widescreen image like this. Um, and it was necessary because of how cramped it was on the sets. Here's our first look at the the full exterior of V'ger. And this was uh, this was done by, uh, started on by Steve Berg at Foundation at the time. And uh, he did a lot of research and found uh, Sid Mead's uh, designs for V'ger and uh, I think really nailed it. And John Tesca took over the shots of it later on. That was the one shot. I mean, that was the shot that we needed in this film. Um, we looked at many, many, many different passes of it, right? That was, if there was one that we obsessed over, mm -hmm. it was probably that. Yeah, that to was get the it, one that had the it most just, right. Um, too much smoke, not enough smoke. The movement, the, where the earth is, I mean, everything, small, it had yeah. to sell. And when we premiered this at the Paramount Theater on the lot, everybody applauded. And so I think we uh, did what we set out to do. But um, they didn't have that originally, and it you never didn't really, never really understood the, the geography of what was going on. That this the cloud had dissipated, revealing this enormous vessel orbiting Earth. You get a, a graphic uh, there that represents it, which always reminded me kind of of the RKO logo from the old films, a lot of which Bob Wise made. Um, and uh, what they ended up with was just uh, cutting some shots, repeating some shots from other portions of the movie. This was another sequence where sound was going to play a major role. We were talking, you know, Bob was saying that part of the other reason that the, in watching the film is that it wasn't, Vigil wasn't as threatening. And we needed to present this powerful threat in sound as much as in, in picture. And so when we were dealing with this, I said to Chuck, really make it feel like this remarkable, powerful energy comes from way behind you and goes... Hmm. Right over the over well, the. Well, Spock the even just, says that those those balls of energy are hundreds of times more powerful than what attacked the ships. Mm -hmm. So we needed to get that sense. Plus, do you remember we found fully executed color paintings of those exact angles Gorgeous. of V'ger, which they had filmed for yes. the purpose of cutting into the picture for a preview that never happened. So all we did was create those exact angles, exactly as they were painted and planned. What's funny is, is that the only shot that we that we pretty much did for the the film that wasn't used was a shot of the the balls over the the earth going into position. Right. It was the entire earth surrounded by these energy weapons. We actually a few years ago gave the shot to StarTrek.com, so they have the you'll be able to see that shot right. if you go on online and you should be able to see that. I think there are also alternate versions of the. The, the, the rack focus, uh, right? Version. The Enterprise reflection in the travel pod window. Mm -hmm. So now, I think the end result, which really the rhythm and the feeling of the movie has not changed at all, but the, what has happened is that you now understand exactly what's going on, and that is what um, Bob was going for, what he inspired in us. Um, you know, we we sat watched the picture several times with him and made all of our notes about what he wanted and um, to see if, what we could do. Um, and then he basically let us do it and looked at everything. And he did have some um, opinions where um, he told us to put, put it back the way it was or ideas of his own or to change things. Um, but again, the goal was to not make you suddenly feel like you are seeing a different movie than you remember seeing and I'm sorry to say that that has, that fate has befallen a number of science fiction films from this era. Um, 
that we don't need to uh, specifically name at the moment. You probably know what they are. But um, in the case of all of them, they were all hugely successful films and didn't need to um, uh, really be messed with at all. But nobody was standing on a pedestal rallying for the cause of the 1979 version of this movie. It was very, very obvious that it was unfinished, that it, yeah, the raw material was all there. It simply needed the normal amount of time, the normal amount of work that every film usually gets and always deserves. The greatest compliment that I feel that we've received from this picture is when people say that they've seen the film and they didn't really notice anything different. Mm-hmm. And, and that's... I don't want people to say, oh, I love that one shot. It was great. That means we failed or didn't, you know when it's so seamless that you don't know that there are a, a thousand edits in this project. Sometimes we had to pull one frame. And I think over 90 shots that were in some way altered in terms of effects. Right? Over 100. Right. right. That when you do that much work and no one notices it, it's, it's, that's the compliment I want. That's what means you did your job. Instead of the constant reviews of, oh, did you see that great new whatever? No, that's not the way it works. This was a moment where I specifically remember being on the mixing stage with Chuck Michael and um, doing this scene, this reel that day. And I'm like, wow, this whole thing has just come to life, and I just feel like we're all going to be blown to smithereens any second. And it's good to hear the feedback of people who have given this movie a second a second look, and uh, you know, looked at it 20 years later and said, you know, this is this is better than I remembered it, and I I, or. I really understand it now, mm-hmm. or I, I really mm-hmm. enjoy it a lot more than I did when but I was younger. But I can't tell you or, what's different. Right. Now, also, or, you know, I don't remember it being as good as it was. Mm-hmm. We mentioned earlier about the sound work, the sound design, particularly for the bridge, which um, we, we built to gradually. When you first got, so everybody's scrambling around trying to get the thing going. It was almost no noise. When it was um, the scene where um, Ilea comes on, there was a few things going. And then when they got underway, you had the full level of the sound. And now here, where Kirk gives the order to shut everything down and put everything on automatic, we gradually dropped the sound of the bridge out. So you have this contrast, whereas in the original version, you didn't have that at all. It was always the same. It was this kind of low hiss of room tone, and that was it. I always It, it gives us some place to go, sound-wise, audibly. Mm-hmm. And you see that everything is off behind her. I think we kept in a very quiet beep of an automated system working. And then as they come back onto the bridge and resume their stations, you gradually can now hear them all coming on. People press buttons and something happens. Even though in reality, you know, we all use computers now. We don't have a beep for every button we press. Nothing, I, well, nothing I, beeps. I do. You do? Well, <laughs> Darren, that's you. That's why, that's why you did this thing. Right. Because you knew that. So, but, uh, but you see... You're watching, you know, it's, it's like why every time you look at somebody asleep in a movie or a TV show, they're snoring. Why? Because you visually understand that they're sleeping, they're not dead. So that's why you need the beeps when you hit panels in science fiction movies. It's funny. They were people, the other interesting comment that I remember from one of the reviews when Director's Edition came out was that um, they even made the uniforms better. <laughs> and I, I, I was stopped and I started thinking, what does this person mean? And it just, what I think it was, was that without any sound on the bridge as dead as it was it left you just looking around for something to you know experience and there was so many shots of just people standing around that it tightened here's our here's our big overhaul of the the last act 
where we go into the inner chamber that Spock has been in before, but now we see, I guess, all the imagery is turned off, and we see its actual uh, interior. And this was uh, uh, intended to uh, intended to show things in there before, and we had boards for it, and uh, we had to do a little bit of uh, design work to uh, flesh out what hadn't actually been created for it, but. Uh, I think it's a it's a nice bridging in between the final uh, the final confrontation at the island to uh, to this uh, transference into the inner chamber. There was an earlier version that we were talking about early on with Bob that we just ended up going with this and love this. This is the final result that the orifice opens and it was going to be space. It looked like it was space, almost like you were going into that that secondary uh, section and everything was still on. And then when you finally pull through there, it's almost like they were either being released or being put into that extra section. And when they pull closer, the stars that were out there were going to start moving and they would start building, they would come out to be the blocks that would build the bridge. It was just something that was early on that we were discussing with, with Bob of an idea. And I always really liked the idea of the illusion that they were going into this next space. Right. And or into some new hologram. I think of, going with what the storyboards were, I think, was the way to go. Even though there were many versions of that, um, that uh, had again um, later on, you'll see these lightning bolts that are c- coming around um, where the Enterprise ultimately comes to rest. And they one idea was that those bolts would illuminate all this massive machinery mm-hmm. of this chamber, but it sa- it felt bigger keeping it black. This. Um, sequence was um, put back in very important one um two very important things happen here one is kirk ordering uh the self-destruct to be on standby in case they fail to take vidra with them and the other was um uh the spock weeping scene which was in improvised into the script by leonard nimoy actually uh, because he realized um that again the main theme the main what this story really was about was not on paper and it needed to be stated it needed to be in there um so we track around the bridge here to you know each of our characters and then finally end up on spock and then get this extraordinary moment where spock weeps and um he explains really what's going on in the film i loved a little bit earlier also while kirk was ordering the self-destruct the exchange of glances between him and steve collins's decker um their relationship you know the rift has been um, you know, repaired there. Nothing specifically happened to uh, bring that about, but it's probably just Spock's presence that, that again, that that um, gradual build-up of this camaraderie and working together and f- all finding their destiny once again. They become themselves again. Right, and they're all settling into their purpose. Even though they're facing death right in the face. Right. You know, they so are, they're, they're becoming uh, complete people again. It was all of them coming together like they originally did. Right. Which launched the, the movie series. Right. Because they, we got things back to where they needed to be. Kirk and crew on the Enterprise. And made us want to see more. But I think the insert also that was added of the Enterprise going through the innards, that passageway into this uh, chamber that they're getting towards now... Um, was put 
in right at the spot where it needed to be because right where Scotty said, yes, Viger will take Viger with us, we now actually see that the, you know, they're in the midst of his vessel and the matter-antimatter explosion is just going to take it all with it. I love that uh, something we, we haven't actually said yet was that that shot, which I believe Steve Berg designed, was mm-hmm. that, right? Um, when we were cutting this film, the way that the film looked and the fact that it's an epic picture, the way your eye registers um, something when it's big versus a, a video screen is very different. So we had set up a projector at Paramount to our editing system when we were editing with the entire film on the wall uh, to make sure that scale was not going to be betrayed as we were doing it and the timing would not be betrayed for the epic film. And what I really love about that shot of the Enterprise going through the inner operings of of Viger is that nowadays you'd have a much bigger shot of the ship. But that stayed with the the massive scale. Because at the scale we were looking at it, we could see it. Right. And pulling back still kept it the, you know, the epic scale of the entire picture, even though that was a completely new shot. This was great. I mean, Bob Wise's um, collection is at um, USC and um, at the Cine Television Library run by our friend Ned Comstock. And uh, when we first were talking about this and went down there and looked through all of this and found the storyboards for this um, wing walk sequence, as it was officially called, um, we were astounded because in the 79 version, they it looks like they just sort of pull up to a soundstage, right, mm-hmm. and yeah. stop, and you actually hear a clunk of them <laughs> pulling up. And um, then they just kind of get out there and in some very hastily executed matte paintings, um, do this walk um, across these uh, hexagonal tiles. But now, based on original storyboards, you see Viger's um, brain complex island sort of floating there um, with the sort of Stonehenge-like um, structures coming um, up out of it. And you see Viger forming these hexagonal blocks as a bridge to the Enterprise. Um, all done based on the original storyboards in CG, including the um, little people coming up through the hatch there and getting into the position that they need to be in for the live-action shots. And then we have um, shots of them walking across that we went back to the original blue screen plates, correct? Yes, mm-hmm. and those, those little, angle shots. Those little right. lights that come in, we actually animated uh, in uh, on twos so that it would look like it was... Uh, shot on an animation stand, and they, we didn't put any motion blur in it. We didn't put anything like that, just to make it look like a shot that was done in the, '79. The time, right. right, and then I also believe that we had was it was it these lightning bolts were they done with a Tesla coil? Or well, they were originally done with a Tesla coil. Then weren't they scanned? Well, what I'm the original saying, film yeah, that right. we found, Mark, right. uh, Darren? I'm saying we found the original film that uh, of these lightning bolts. These were not just animated things put these in. These were not recreated. You know, these these were, were the actual lightning bolts done in 78, 79, yeah. and then when we needed to um, recomposite them into the film. You're looking at the original lightning. See, and this is what it becomes all about this entire journey across space and through this cloud and into this vessel and what does it come down to it comes you know down to this tiny little thing with a wire that's not connected and uh, see right there that lightning behind there um, was not there originally was I think in. a lot of modern day game shows owe a lot to the design of this <laughs> set <laughs> I would say so mm-hmm. you are the weakest link <laughs> 
there again, that lightning was put in. So you'd never notice it. You'd never know it. I mean, it, it just, uh, you'd have to compare the two versions of the film frame by frame, but those little things... Which we've done. Add the, add <laughs> the atmosphere. We, we three have, yes. But um, this was a treacherous set. People kept falling through it. And there you have Ilea and V'ger. Decker seeing the two of them, can I tell them apart or can I not? Is this really the woman I once loved or is this part of this machine? And of course it has to be Kirk, has to be Captain Kirk, you know, who has taken this entire journey up to a couple of letters that are scarred over. And uh, that has led to that question of who am I? You know, what is my role in the universe? And that's what all these characters are asking themselves. Um, Harold, Harold Livingston, the uh, screenwriter of this very witty, acerbic guy, um, I'm sure he, he would love uh, to have had the time to flesh that concept out some more. Whether it really would have happened is another story, but um, it's there. That's where really the movie that's inside all of this is, um, you know, finding out what part of you is covered with dirt that you can't see, that you need to reveal to figure out who you are. Je Jerry Goldsmith's son, Joel Goldsmith, who um, is a composer himself and um, wrote a lot of the Borg-related cues for Star Trek First Contact, did the... Um, what essentially is this voice of V'ger. And uh, right there, I think it was uh, telling us that the coffee was ready. <laughs> but again, a very uh, interesting sound. It's mechanical, yet it's organic. Um, it's not uh, altogether different in concept from um, R2-D2. And um, the Star Wars sound designers, Ben Burt's efforts to have that combination of organic and uh, technological together where you can't really tell where one began and one ended. Well, it's interesting that the kinetic lighting that's uh, underneath the set that you can see showing the coalescing patterns of light... That's in using engineering, too. ...was also used in engineering, and uh, they brought back that uh, the people who did that... Uh, for Voyager, for their for their engine room as well, with a bit more color. As a matter of fact, it was the same exact device, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Darren? I believe they, so. That they actually recycled the motion picture one. I think so. And also, I mean, that was like the first time this movie was where we saw an actual warp engine core. It's mm -hmm. it with this became standard on Star Trek. Every time we saw a starship, uh, actually, and basically the engineering core. Um, the warp core was basically in the same spot, right? It was the same That's spot, say, using yeah. a lot of the same set pieces, for just every, rearranged. Every incarnation of Star Trek. Since this movie, up until the end of Enterprise, those sets were all used for Star Trek after since, you know, 20-some-odd years. In the interim, that was always a, a Star Trek project. Mm -hmm. And again, the lighting changes here, you know, as... Um, V'ger uh, comes closer to realizing what it needs. We go a little bit warmer here, a little bit while we're going to go uh, into a magenta, and then finally into a complete red. Um, it's pure classic science fiction. 
the kind of set they're in, the sound work, the way the lighting changes, the music cue that um, Jerry's humming away with under this thing. This is this is classic science fiction, and Bob is really good at this. He did every genre well, um, but uh, you know when you just look at the three sci-fi movies he did, Day of the Earth is still and the Andromeda Strain, and this. There's that simplicity and that uh, sense of never straying too far from really what the conventions of the genre are and doing it really well in an almost definitive way, dare I say. And Gene was a very big fan of Dave Yersted still. Yes. So he was totally honored and thrilled to have Bob do this picture. See, and Bob, very talented guy, but not a really emotional guy. In a way, he was a lot like Spock. Um, and his movies are not full of gushing. There's never any really, uh, ne never even any gushing romantic things in almost any film that he did. Even West Side Story, The Sound of Music, his musicals, it was always restrained. He backed off on that as much as possible and just um, told the story. So it's interesting that um, in this movie, um, they're all so detached. And um, for me, that idea that they need to come together, they need to share emotions with each other, um, comes through. But it comes through in a very Robert Wise kind of way. See, and there you come to what it's all about. It's not about just give me some numbers, right? Star Trek was never about just give me the numbers. It's about uh, who we are, who we're connecting with, who we are as people. Bob's such a master when it comes to just her stepping forward with... Yes, uh-huh. You know, creative minds won't join with VG, you just feel it. She senses who among this group is also incomplete right now. You see Decker has um, had his ship taken away. He's had his former love come into his life and then... Uh, taken away. Taken away and turned into a machine. You know, um, what is his destiny? Kirk and Spock and McCoy all belong with each other. They belong on the Enterprise. And here's the physical symbol of broken connection. Right. Yes, don't touch it, Captain. You'll get a shock. See, and this idea of um, they, 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 they can't figure out a problem unless they're all part of it. They each have something to bring to the table. Kirk has in his input, Spock has his, McCoy has his, and together, um, you know, it's often been, I think, uh, said in analysis of Star Trek is that uh, really McCoy and Spock were two sides of... Kirk's psyche. Right. One was the logic, the other one was the emotion. And he would always sit back and listen to see, to listen to the two debate with each other and then work out, find some middle ground and um, work out the problem in a way that wasn't reckless, nor was it cold. And that's what he does here. Now we've entered into the red phase. Remember this on video cassette? Just Man, all it, red, it bleeding was, everywhere. It looked frightening. Yeah, I think uh, video level standards have improved as technology has. We can now get a picture that um, has much more latitude and can show us uh, much more accurate 
to what a film originally looked like and what the, the artist originally went for. Now Kirk puts it together. See, he's listened to Spock and McCoy, and now he's put it together. Well, I think this was one of the key parts of the, of the script phase that uh, Nimoy and Shatner contributed the most to this yes. final solution. I really love this moment here where um, Ilea pushes Kirk away. Good timing. With See, the and then too. look at look at Stephen's reaction. He looked up. You know, it's like he knows that she knows mm -hmm. that this is right. That this is what needs to happen. This is a really, this is really an amazing concept. This is, you know, this movie essentially was 2001: A Space Odyssey with the Star Trek cast. Yes. And I think there was a lot of uh, people don't give it enough credit because can you take a very campy, very um, inexpensively uh, done TV series from the 1960s that really was considered a failure and do those characters and that concept, can they hold their own in a science fiction story of the weight and importance of 2001 A Space Odyssey? And Right. Um, Will they stand up on that canvas? Right. And it, and it does. And... Um, this is an, inc an incredible concept of um, an intelligent machine that basically, you know, as Spock says, its knowledge spans the universe. If you really studied that phrase, you know, spans the universe, it's just, just mind-boggling. But yet it can do nothing without a soul, basically. Well, it's a, a theme that's inspired a, a tremendous amount of sci-fi as well. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. It's an essential human myth, right? It's like it's, uh, it's amazing how powerful and beautiful the sequence is. And what is Jerry writing here musically? He's writing a big lovemaking scene. Totally, you know. And this is like the you know. If you listen to just the music, the it's, they are the, the, it's a it's the two it's, parts of a baby. It's a romantic melody builds literally to you know a climax. You're actually standing there watching yeah. a new form of life, you know. Uh, guys, I think it's time to leave. Yes, and they've been in this situation yeah, before. Yeah, but you see, you get that sense that now you kind of needed this journey. Now it's Star Trek. Now it's Kirk, Spock, and McCoy having figured out the problem and getting their ass out of there, back to their ship. And, um, you know, this problem solved. What's next? We added uh, one shot in this using the original animation uh, moray patterns. Right. Again, to be very clear with the geography, because um, abstract works to a degree, but um, at this point in the film, right at the climax, right there, you have to understand what's going on. And, um, yeah, that physical existence of that vast vessel no longer matters. Um, Vider has be evolved into this incredible consciousness um, that can't be contained anymore. Um, and it goes off into its own plane of existence, you know, revealing um, the Enterprise, which is a microcosm in itself. It's a whole universe in and of itself, with now a family of characters who have um, figured out that they need each other and that they all belong right where they are. I mean, uh, 
to people who love Star Trek, it's, um, it's, you, you face a lot of, uh, opposition to this film and not understanding what's going on. And yeah, it has some clunkiness to it. Quite a bit of it. Um, we worked with Bob Wise to smooth over as much of it as we possibly could, but that, to me, it's still there. Um, that concept is still there. It's, uh, essential Star Trek, I would argue. And this is talking about what we've just been through and and the the central core of the story, but it's also talking about Star Trek itself. It's the rebirth into a new form of Star Trek. Again, another director might have gone very weepy with the moment where... Um, um, Scotty comes in and says, we can get you back to Vulcan. But, you know, Bob, in his own very clinical way, um, knows that it's enough to simply have Spock say, my task on Vulcan is completed. Therefore, he doesn't belong back on Vulcan, seeking total logic out in a Vulcan monastery in the desert with his hair growing long. He belongs here. Nice theatrical moment, again, also of bringing a few missing people back onto the bridge. Their major was uh, Dr. Chapel and Scotty. And then right there, Kirk with Spock and McCoy standing behind him loyally. That's Star Trek. And again, that ending. It's like, it's not about, uh, you know, um, uh, four, five, seven, mark, three, two, nine, whatever. It's just that away. It's about us. It's about the people. It's about we're going exploring. It's not about the technology, the machines. Those are our tools. That's what's going to get us there. We've gotten there because we've all worked together to get here. Um, there's a lot of people, particularly politicians, who really should watch this movie, maybe even listen to our humble commentary and uh, and figure that out. Figure out, you know, that we, we need to connect and then maybe if we do, we can get to what we're seeing right here. And we close it off with the, with the stars as we began it. And of course, that sums it all up right there. At least not the, uh, the pop that originally had on there. The last shot of the Enterprise going into war, Doug Trumbull was telling us, was the bookending of the uh, the original shot that Dykstra did with the Klingons. Right. <laughs> that he, uh, John did that shot on his, on his around. own on his own with his group, and uh, when 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 Doug saw it, he was like, "Okay, well, you're going to do that. Where you know, I need something. I'm going to do something in the end with the Enterprise and." Uh, the fun little camaraderie, but the amazing results that came up there gave us uh, two of the greatest shots that have been in any science fiction picture. And it's funny, very early on here, when I uh, was making my model of the uh, of the movie Enterprise, uh, I of course wanted to do you know shots from the from the movie to see if it worked. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, the first thing I did was uh, try and recreate that ending shot of the Enterprise and light it mm -hmm. correctly and. Uh, and uh, do all the wonderful things. And when we went to see Doug Trumbull, Doug, right? I showed it to him on my uh, power book, and he, he said, blown away. wow, that's it. And that was really cool, and uh, I'll never forget that. It reminds me here, looking at the credits, that um, uh, Alan Howarth was listed in here, and he was one of the, he was the guy who did Aaliyah's... Uh, the uh, processing on his processing voice. Processing on her voice. He, he, 
And it was funny because we had um, basically one one line, which is uh, uh, carbon units are not true life forms. Right. Only the creator with, uh, and other similar life forms are true that we needed um, recreated the same way. And uh, our team just just said, you know, it, it's such a difficult thing to get. Let's go back to Alan Howarth. And we did, and he delivered four or five different versions of it. And it's just funny that it, that that we end up uh, going back and... Uh, He's a terrific electronic music um, specialist and uh, well-known for, well for working with uh, John Carpenter on his scores. Yeah, Sid, Sid Mead's name in the uh, original credits had an extra E on the end, and we yeah. fixed it. Yeah, a few, a few little things were fixed, fixed even in the credits. Um, but uh, there's, of course, a lot of people that... Uh, Paramount, who, who worked um, at the time, and also when we did this project, um, who deserve uh, our gratitude for uh, facilitating it. As uh, we talked about earlier, we'd like to finish it, but particularly the people that um, managed the film well, vaults. They were just fantastic. I, I want to mention a few. And we had Laura we had Thornburg. Jeff, and, uh, Jeff Redoyce was in, was in charge, and we had Laura, and we had Ron Smith. Right. And, and uh, just uh, we couldn't have asked for a better group of uh, people working with us uh, to get this thing done. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was just a thrilling uh, experience for Bob to uh, be able to go back and finish it. It was always for him. Certainly. It was it was like the one that got away, and um, you know he had always talked about that it was the only film that he had never previewed um, of thirty nine films. Uh, he then. Um, his 40th was a Showtime film called A Storm in Summer, and then um, following this, uh, following that, uh, he came back uh, with us to Paramount and to finish Star Trek. And uh, I, I, we mentioned the premiere that we had at the lot. That was extraordinarily gratifying to see him really, truly happy with the film, uh, audience applauding it. The Hollywood Bowl performance we also mentioned was extraordinarily gratifying. While we're on their names, um, let's mention the the folks at uh, Foundation Im Imaging here who did an amazing job with a very a, difficult, a, a very difficult job in a short amount of time. And uh, and of course, John O and Ben Martin who helped Chuck with the sound, right. and uh, amazing job all around. And even to today, you know, I I couldn't have imagined two guys that I wouldn't that, that uh, thank you Dave could have done a better job with this. An honor working with you guys. And that's our audio commentary for Star Trek The Motion Picture, the Director's Edition. Thanks for joining us. Please visit StarTrek.com for more exclusive features.